All right, cool. All right, what's up, guys? This is Corey with another episode of E4 Explicit Podcast, and today we have Daniel D'Amico, who is associate pro- professor at Brown. So, uh, right? I'm a lecturer at Brown in the economics department, and okay. I'm uh, associate director at the Political Theory Project. Okay, all right. uh, there are people who care about that, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good point. I don't care about it. Sounds yeah. nice, but I got you. Um, so. You just kind of told us who you are, but give me a little bit more or give the viewers and the listeners a little bit more background of kind of who you are and what like your life's work has, you know, culminated to this point. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm an economist by training. Uh, my job title here at Brown, I'm, uh, uh, I work at a really groovy, really awesome place called the Political Creep Project. We do uh, what could be loosely be called PPE, uh, philosophy, politics, economics. So it's very interdisciplinary. Um, and my job is sort of to get college students excited about thinking in those interdisciplinary terms. So Hmm. connecting dots across philosophy and political economy and those sort of things. Um, PPE is like really uh, newly popular in uh, the academy as is like interdisciplinary work more generally. Um, For in that popularity, a lot of people are like, well, what, what does PPE work look like, so to speak? Um, and maybe I'm bad at answering that because the way in which I answer it is just by example, which is to say that my research, like ever since I was an undergrad, I've been sort of fascinated with the question of, um, prison growth in the United States. Um, if you ever talk to a nerdy academic, especially a social scientist, um, sometimes young people are like, well, I want to be a social scientist, but I don't know what to work on. Um, the advice that was given to me was look for a hockey stick graph, right? Uh, so you, you have James Harrigan and Anthony Davies on, and uh, they're really pop. Uh, they often popularize this idea of the great fact of economic performance. Like if you look at world history, uh, a, a timeline of a really long period, and you are looking at economic performance once you hit that industrial revolution, it's a hockey stick, right? It goes from a flat straight line to a flat vertical line. And when I was an undergrad and I started reading about um, prison population rates, the prison population rate of the United States looks like a hockey stick graph. And whenever you're looking at data like that, with that sort of hockey stick, that sort of like hard pivot and, and, and schism, rapid increase, you know that something massive has changed. Something significant is reshaping the relationship that previously existed into some new meaningful relationship. And so there's obviously causes that place the timing and the magnitude of that change. And then there's also probably going to be a lot of consequences. So if you just said, okay, well, before we didn't have these type of issues to deal with, and now we do, um, you've got yourself something to do as a researcher, a scholar, a social scientist, et cetera. And so that's how I I came across that topic. I did like an undergrad thesis on it, a PhD dissertation on it. And I basically worked on the the same topic um, ever since. And I mean, it, it hasn't, per se resolved itself. So the, the problem doesn't seem yeah. to be going anywhere. That's true. Um, so people are like, well, who benefits from these things? And I have to admit a lot of times I'm like, it's me. Like when the thing gets bad, it means that I have more work to work do. Work to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, in that, in that sort of journey, um, I've, I've sort of carved out uh, a unique niche and perspective with what I think um I don't want to. I don't want to get too um, 
uh, overblown in a claim that like, like this feature is like the uh, par excellence explanation. Yeah. But I do think that the perspective that I've carved out is dangerously not talked about, right? So if you, I mean, in our present moment, Black Lives Matter activists, police reform, criminal justice reform, lots of people are reading and talking about criminal justice institutions and their causes and effects in the United States. That's great. Uh, what my work has focused on explicitly is the role of organization um, uh, in particular institutional organizations. So how the administration of criminal justice services like police, like courts, like prisons, how they are organized and how they are organized uniquely today relative to the past and how they are organized in comparing different countries. And what I mean by this and like uh, my friends who work in like private sector with like real jobs, unlike us nerdy academics <laughs> or whatever, um, they know what I'm talking about. They, you know what it's like to work for a corporation that is very vertically oriented, where you have like multiple layers of bureaucracy and bosses that act over you and creates a distinctive type of incentive compared to a more decentralized or horizontally managed organization where you have, have like different departments that have uh, a degree of autonomy and independence relative to the others. Sure. So Bitcoin. That, that's just, yeah, Bitcoin yeah. versus central banking, right? Exactly. These, are, these are different organizational patterns for administering monetary policy. Yep. Well, businesses, you can have a lemonade stand that's a, that's a hierarchy or you can have a lemonade stand that's like a decentralized franchise model. Sure organizations as they're uh, leveraged by the government, right? Police departments versus um, buses or education, et cetera. Um, the United States compared to other countries. This organizational difference is also at play there. So one thing would be, okay, well, this is one of multiple different variables to do comparative analysis, right? You could say business A and business B. Business A is successful because the people there are all smarter right? They're just better, more trained, more productive people, right? That's a very sort of like personal or behavioralist explanation to why business A might be performing different than business B. A different explanation could be something like, well, um, the, 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 the thing that they're making, the, the product or service is just more demanded yeah. uh, business A versus business B. They're fundamentally different goods, right? But what I'm saying is that there could be profitability, real tangible performances related to the organizational pattern. That for all intents and purposes, the same quality of people work in both of these businesses, for all intents and purposes, the same uh, intelligence and sort of work ethic of the people, like they're, they're, they're virtually clones of one another. We could say they're selling basically the same good or service, but you organize them differently. You have yeah. a different bureaucratic administration of authority of different layers of management, different layers of decision-making that sets up a different incentive scheme for how real decisions are going to get made in those businesses. And what, um, like this is not new to me that that organizational structure matters, right? Every, like this is something that management people and and anyone who studies organizations and institutions and businesses really knows a lot about. But it's very very under um, discussed when it comes to uh, the criminal justice system and when we look to explain prison population rates and how they differ in different countries. Um, 
And so in short, I, I would say, if you wanted to understand the American experience, what, what's really going on when you look at that hockey stick and you say, whoa, we've quintupled our prison population rate in just a few decades since the late 1970s, um, I would say part and parcel of that shift is that criminal justice administration in the United States has become a much more federally involved program than it ever used to be. Um, and this, this gets really, really confusing and really, really complicated when you start also talking about the United States in comparison to other countries, because, I mean, and we've known this since the 1800s, like this, this like groovy guy, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a book on the American penitentiary system, like the 1800s, um, before he writes Democracy in America. And he, his, his starting observation is, hold the phone, the title of this book is dumb. Um, and it's like his own book. Yeah, but he was on he was on assignment, and it's on the penitentiary system in the United States. And he's like, there is no one penitentiary system. He was like, we have multiple states. Within those states, there are multiple counties. Yeah. In those counties, there can be multiple jurisdictions of, of 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 police patrol. So first and foremost, it's a network of multiple systems, right? There's a degree of like, you, the criminal law, right? The laws that are on the books are. I live in Providence. If you sneeze, you're in Massachusetts. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that right now with COVID, but like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can literally like spit across the state line with a whole different set of criminal Rules. legal codes. Yeah. Now in the United States, they tend to be kind of similar. It's not like you can like, I don't know. Can't murder someone zoom. in one state and be good. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, historically it was like, really easy to get away with murder across state lines because okay. local local states wouldn't have jurisdiction to go get you in another state oh okay right? so they can't like so, extradite you from another state yeah so i mean like if you watch old movies that took place in like the 50s 60s 70s i mean uh there's a great netflix docuseries about um bundy uh yeah. serial killer right yeah you you the ability for them to actually go and catch him in florida after he had killed people in Washington state and Utah, the, the profile of the, of the crime was like slicing up college girls. Yeah. Right. Like, yep. and, and they even had similar descriptions of the car and stuff, but we didn't have fax machines Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and driver's licenses didn't have uh, photographs on them until like 1990. Damn. So they had the guy arrested in Florida, but they had no like proof that it was, he was and he did it yeah, right. yeah it was way easier to be a serial killer back in back those in the day, days yeah, yeah. It, and and sure enough if you look at serial killer it's like like the trend line is significantly down largely because of these like sort of logistic technological reasons yeah yeah social media all kinds of stuff yeah so i would say like um that's part and parcel of like the 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 style of argument that i'm trying to put forward as a as an explanation for prison growth is that these trade-offs right were made where we sort of kind of monopolized a bit of um, the administration. The, it, we're a much more hierarchical system. We've empowered our federal enforcers. Sure. Why? Because federal enforcers with things like RICO and, yeah. um, and, and the FBI, they can get serial killers easier. They can yeah. get organized get crime mafia. easier. They can get terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've, logistically speaking, we build better mousetraps in the criminal justice system of those type of federal crimes that has consequences in terms of tear gas, Kevlar vests, yeah. uh, militarized police yes. and, um, and the types of crimes that we enforce at the local level. So there's that sort of trade-off is like, okay, what do we need to do to, to solve serial killing? Well, we need to empower cross state 
uh, enforcement protocols, executive authority in cross-state criminal, criminal jurisdictions. But that has these spillover consequences where if you're an FBI agent and you go to like Paducahville nowhere and they don't have the equipment that you need, you're frustrated. So you're like, we got to get them funding. We got we to gotta make sure that they have a consistent uh, illegality of the drugs that we're trying to like use as inroads to break up these organized crime syndicates. Sure. And so that door... Uh, that doorway into funding, into like style of organizational management than we had accustomed to that yeah. our constitutional system was designed to handle. Um, and here we are amidst the sort of growing pains of figuring out how, how rights protections to, to cope with uh, a balance of, of executive authority across state and federal um, policies. Damn, that's crazy. That's fuck. That's deep, man. That was a long explanation. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry. No. It's complicated. I, I mean, like, say, it has to be. Not, it has to be. Yeah. Um, it's not like, oh, this is what I do. No, it's but, yeah. it, but so basically, what you're saying is the uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is like, yes, we give the federal more leeway to get like the big fish, but the caveat of that is like the smaller stuff is going to also be kind of handled on a federal level whether it's fair or not that's just how the cookie crumbles basically well i mean that would be the best case scenario uh, okay wow <laughs> right <laughs> uh tra tragically uh we also screw up incentives at the local level in such a way that like has a corrupting style influence if that sure makes sense, that right? makes sense so, yeah that makes sense uh, i got you um i mean we, we're also funneling money in 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 larger proportions and scopes than we used to. Um, I mean, uh, there's a guy, Dan Beer, he, he used to do a lot with a, a Facebook page called Skeptical Libertarian, but um, he's, he's done a bunch of really good data work at, at like the sort of op-ed level where he points out that the, um, the proportion of prison space to police spending um, during this time is really screwed up, right? Like, and if you think about the sort of philosophical background to that, it's the idea that prisons are punitive, police are deterrent, right? They're proactive, right? More cops on the street keep crime from happening. More jails, you have crime, and then you have somewhere to put the criminals, yeah. right? So if, if given just a, short, a sheer rational choice, you would prefer uh, cops to, to prisons as uh, an even uh, effectiveness strategy. If, they, sure. if you knew that you would you would basically have the same budget and the same ability to do it. You, you'd rather forestall the crime. Um, and so there's all these like sort of warping effects that have happened with uh, the increased role of federal legislation and federal financing in the criminal justice system. I mean, most, most of human history, we like, we, we intuitively understand this. I live in Providence. It's the Providence police department. I used to live in New Orleans. It was the New Orleans police department. Some European countries have, um, like I was in France last summer and it said like police de France. Yeah. Um, so it's a more sort of like national um, provision. Yeah. But for the vast majority of times, localities, cultures, etc., policing is a very localized uh, endeavor. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, even here in DC, there's, I could drive down the street, head to the Capitol and there's like five different agencies. Right. Right. You know, you got the Washington right. police department, you got the Capitol police, you got the secret service police, you got the FBI police, 
Yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. So I mean, like a, a lot of this stuff, and again, what I mean by it's it's under discussed in our contemporary dialogue. Like if the the current debate on my Facebook wall amongst my sort of cacophony of libertarian econo colleagues is everybody's sort of shocked about the role of these federal troops in Portland and being dispensed to these other civil unrest areas. Um, a lot of the, 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 the young people I've talked to who are involved in the protest movements, I worry really don't know that much about the legalities or illegalities of some of the things that they're doing. If, if you are using social media and your cellular phone to coordinate with your friends to attend rallies that end up being uh, violent or disruptive against federal property, like by the letter of the law, that might be a federal crime. Yeah. That gives the sort of paper trail to federal officers to do what it is that they're doing. That's a problem. It could be a problem with the law, but it might be that what you're observing with regard to the behaviors of the officers is totally legitimate basic yeah. law. Um, I mean, the similar dynamic with regard to like, well, would you blame a soldier in the Marines or the Navy for the protocols of the Iraq war? I mean, they're not in charge of those decisions. They're trained to do a particular job. Yes. There's similar dynamics with law enforcement at the federal and the state level. Um, Following orders, basically. Yeah. But they're different crimes. Yeah, right? that and makes then, sense. The, the, there's a great book called like... Uh, three crimes a day or something, something, some turn of phrase like that, where they track, they're like the average person in the United States commits felony uh, uh, federal offenses just by going about their ordinary business. <laughs> That's how ridiculously stupid and I mean, the like, laws are written. Oh yeah. I mean, we got, we just have things on the books that are, that are preposterous, but That's basically, crazy. Um, I mean, the, the scope of what is federally criminal compared to what is locally criminal or, or, or state criminal is a very different thing. So a lot of people get confused when they're reporting prison statistics, for example, about like, oh, well, uh, like 50% or, or, or some odd are, are drug violators. And it's like, well, that's only looking at federal inmates, which is a very small percentage of total inmates. Sure. Most, most inmates are held in state facilities, not federal facilities, because most people are in jail for like mugging, breaking and entering, car theft murder, those sort of things. But if you do something across state lines, right, most things that involve that are drug trafficking, uh, organized crime, uh, immigration violation. So if you look at a, a federal jail facility, it's a whole different distribution of criminals than what you get at a state or local facility. Interesting. So that definitely could skew the numbers because I hear yeah. people say that all the time, like, oh, well, all the nonviolent, either people that went to jail for a gram of marijuana back in the eighties, that did 20 years, they should be let out after doing however many years. Cause it was a nonviolent crime, right? Yeah. There's a, the, the person to follow on the nonviolent versus violent, uh, criminal offenses, uh, FAF. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, locked up. Um, and Peter Moskos, I would say, is really good on this beat as well. And his argument is just like, this is a catchphrase, but it's not really like informed of the real problems. The, mo uh. the majority of the inmates that, that drive our rate and the majority of the inmates in the state facilities are violent criminals. Yeah. Um, and part of that's, I do still 
hate the drug war. <laughs> yes, right? Like part, part of me is just too viscerally like libertarian to let it be ignored that prohibition causes violent crime. Um, but it's not the case that there's like this super majority of like otherwise peaceful marijuana dealers that are like taking up the majority of space in our, in our prisons. Sure. Um, in, in federal facilities, traffickers take up a lot of space um but that's a far field from like i sold a dime bag of marijuana exactly yeah that's like i work for the cartel i could kill right. you if i get yeah. caught yeah yeah um and and again it's like it's not like they are only selling drugs right like if um i'd, I'd be i'd be thrilled to be like pro cartel if if, <laughs> if there was like a principled commitment to like voluntary and peaceful drug drug dealing but yeah. uh my impression is that that's just not the case that's not how they <laughs> operate so no it's yeah that's so funny that's crazy man so do you think that let's just, i want to go back to the hockey stick thing because i thought that was interesting how like you were talking about how there's a flat line and in the giant upkick what was happening before then that then made it jump up because like you i think the u.s is the most um uh imprisoned it's got the most prisons i think it's got the most uh imprisoned people in anywhere in the world i think i don't know i'm just going off on, of facebook on, on net we're definitely like in the lead right if you're just if you're just <laughs> counting people it's a weird thing to be first place out but it's true um and i do think uh, i mean this sounds like sensationalist but like on net we beat we exceed historical experiences of formal internment What's that mean? Uh, Explain that, because I'm an idiot. Like and so. not Nazi Germany, Soviet Union gulags. Like, like I mean, that tickles my concern when you're thinking of, like, the sheer logistics as a relationship, uh, uh, the sheer logistics of government as an enforcement regimen, right? Yeah. In other words, that, like, the totalitarian regimes of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union did so with the technology that is less sophisticated and less has lower capacity than our network of incarceration in the United States today. Hmm. Okay. So it's like, I mean, it would be like Hitler walks in with a slingshot versus Hitler walks in with an Uzi, right? Yeah. We can, we can change the identity of who Hitler is and put it, put mother Teresa or a nicer person. Yeah. But bottom line is the Uzi's the Uzi. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so we have, we have a very like, robust capacity for punishment and and uh warehousing human beings in the united states um the other thing is like crime was high in the mid 20th century so basically everything after again prohibition screws stuff up after the prohibition era from like the late 30s into the 40s 50s 60s like there's there's a pretty steady increase in in the crime problem that we really fixed uh to a huge extent in the 90s mid 90s to, to late 90s we saw this huge decline in violent crime rates so the prison population growth started in the late 70s huh. and so there was this confluence of well you've got public support because the public are kind of fed up with violent violently criminal cities yeah and you've got the war on drugs coming down the pipeline and you've got uh crackdowns on uh federal crimes like uh organized crime uh the italian mafia much much less than it used to be um and you've got 
having to deal with the sort of evolving and adaptive reality of cartels and international drug trade. Um, so, I mean, the, the school of econ that I'm like trained in, public choice econ, Anthony and, and James probably, probably talk about this a lot. Um, it's basically a recognition that um, any, any, any bureaucracy, any, any agent of government is motivated for like, like profit motives similar to private people in the market, right? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. if you have a business, you want your business doing more business. You want yeah. more employees, you want bigger budget, you want more, more uh, retail locations. Uh, I, I did interviews with uh, managers of like Walmarts and Targets and stuff after uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, pardon the patriarchal overtones, but the one guy was like, I'm a store manager. I want a super Walmart. I'm a regular Walmart. I want to manage a super Walmart. It's just yeah. like a housewife. Every housewife wants a bigger house. Yeah. Like, keep it up with the Joneses. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, that's the hustle when you're, when you're talking about bureaucracies, every bureaucracy wants a bigger budget. Every bureaucracy wants more employees. Every agent responsible for making those decisions wants those things too. Yeah. So what you're talking about, in the late 1970s, with regard to incarceration, you're looking at like, like a, 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 a smorgasbord of opportunities sure. for those style bureaucrats to be like, well, I'll build this prison. Like, it's not like there's a shortage of crime. Most crimes go unsolved. Um, it's, there's, there's a public appreciation for a need for doing something about crime. This, this is at least appealing to that perception. Um, and it's like shovel-ready jobs programs. It's like you're, you're actually coordinating with real material production when you're like contracting with uh, arms manufacturers for, for weaponry for your officers, for auto manufacturers to outfit your, uh, your, your, your police uh, departments and construction managers and, and whatnot in building real, real yeah. prison facilities and then labor unions to staff them. Yeah, so, perfect I mean, storm. You're like, like that... Anyone who's just looking to spend money would look at that, that, that avenue and be like, this is great. Lots of uh, proposals in government are um, contentious, right? Yeah, like if you, sure. like uh, education spending begs a question as to like, well, what, what's the curriculum? How does that jive with people's religious attitudes? Like um, if, you're, if you were just saying like, well, where can I spend without like having to get flack, criminal justice for most of those decades up until very recently with like the sort of protest movements and like um, elevation, no, elevation of more, more sort of like radical reform efforts. Like, I mean, vast majority of public opinion is like, yeah, everybody's, everybody's pretty copacetic with spending on police. Most people believe that police are good. Most people believe that it's an effective response to crime. Most people believe that it's more affordable than it is, that it costs us less in pecuniary terms sure. than it really does. Most people think that there are fewer people in jail than there really are. Most people believe that there's more crime than there really is. Um, is that all true? Or is that just like, you know, belief? I, I mean, that's, that's what the data Shows. demonstrates. Yeah. Interesting. So are you a fan of, because I know like it's a big kind of like tagline to defund the police and this and that, but since everything is kind of done, not on a federal level, like you have county sheriffs, you have city police, you have so many avenues, there's no way to just throw a blanket over it and defund everything or, or reform everything. So how do you see that considering everything that you basically just said kind of is the opposite of what the mass. You on know? the one, on the one hand, the funding model I think is 
the right target of attention. Um, but I would be very, very nervous about the boldness of like a blanket statement, like defund the police. Right. And what I mean by that is like the, what I think is going on and some of the, the current research projects that I'm working on and, and some of uh, the previous stuff that I've put out demonstrates is that federal dollars have acted like a puppet master across all of these different jurisdictions at the state and local level. Hmm. Um, education can be a, a, a good parallel to this. If you're a principal at some school in your local state, like you, you live outside of DC. So yeah, like, I live in DC say, Northeast. Yeah. But yeah. there's no public schools. Um, but so like, let's say you, you've got a public school in Fairfax County, right? You got a certain budget. Pennies out of the federal coffer appear like millions to yeah. just your, your one school. Sure. So even if the available dollars don't represent the majority of your budget, it's just free, easy, accessible money that you can use to do things that you otherwise couldn't do. Um, and the dynamic with how federal funding into local police jurisdictions works is similar to that. Like I, I, I was trying to mention before, like suppose you're a, a, a federal officer, right? You're really trying to, to make inroads in the drug war. You're trying to take down a cartel, but the members are, are going in and operating on the ground in jurisdictions and small townships that don't have the resources to do wiretaps. Yeah, or, to combat that. Yeah, or, yeah. or, or to, 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 to put staff on 24-hour, like, uh, surveillances. You would need them to do. So you can, you can benchmark dollars and be like, well, we're going to give you this money to, to beef up that wing of your enforcement. So that does very little for muggings and purse snatchings and break-ins and all this other stuff. Cause now you've got these huge earmarked dollars just for, just for being a sort of uh, outsourced uh, enforcement wing of, of federal criminal policies. Sure. Damn. That's crazy. So, but in a nutshell, so I, I personally think that the police should have more funding because if, you know, they need to, I mean, they're not trained, right? Like if you look at a cop, most, not most cops, but I see cops all the time that are, completely out of shape and i'm like bro there's no way you're not catching my ass you're not going to catch someone who really wants to get away from you or tackle you for your weapon or anything like that and i, I don't think that defunding them because then you also have to think about other programs so i was talking to a friend of mine the other day and we were talking about child trafficking and stuff like that and i'm thinking okay well who are the people that are catching these guys right. cops police officers police right. departments if you defund them guess what all that's going to go away too so yeah. I think it's the opposite, but I just don't know how logistically, because I know we already get a shit ton of money to the police officers. Well, the thing is, is that money can be spent on lots of different things. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is that specifically federal dollars tend to be earmarked towards specific things okay. that actually have problems when it comes to policing the community or reacting to like civil unrest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, I'd love to see, and I don't know what the budget figure is, but I'd love to see a more labor-intensive policing model, right? Where 
cops had less militarized equipment and there were more officers. Yeah, and better um, trained. And better trained, yeah. yeah. So it could be that we need to pay police. It could be that you can cut your total police budget <laughs> and still pay cops more, mm-hmm. right? That's not impossible. Yeah. Um, or it could be that you could defund police on net, but make sure that the spending goes in effective areas. Um, I, don't, I don't have all the answers for that yeah. stuff, but it does seem... So like what, I, what I'm working on right now and what I'm really trying to prove, there's a really big question about how America's federalist unique organizational structure um, is sometimes blamed for its exceptional prison population rate and crime trends and these sort of things. Um, that begs a question, okay, well, what's the proper benchmark of comparison, right? Like when we say, oh, well, like, the United States has more crime, more, more uh, gun crime than other developed nations. And it's like, well, yeah, but other developed nations have like two major cities in them. Exactly. We have 360 million yeah. people. <laughs> and people are like, look at Denmark, look at, look at Norway. I'm yeah. like, yeah, if the United States was New Jersey. Yeah, um, <laughs> literally. If it had six like, million people. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so we got a big question. Like, how, how do you do comparative assessment True. When, you're, when you're talking about the United States? So one thing that I'm doing is I'm taking, okay, well, I'm looking at the criminal justice uh, stats just at the state level. And then I'm using them as though they were each countries. Okay. To the global sample of countries. And one of the things that I think is conspicuous is that our 50 states act in unistep or they, they, they all go together. They're like a school of fish yeah. relative to the global sample. Now, that's not just geography and it's not just like American culture or something. That to me says, oh, well, like the federal government legislatively and financially is sort of puppet mastering here. They're, sure. they're, they're giving a certain form of marching order, managerial expertise, conditioned bu- budgets. Like, yes, you get this money, but you got to spend it on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, we have new federal elite laws. So like, we'd like to see you enforce that. I mean, the points of tension are really interesting. The sort of uh, state-based legalization of marijuana. Yeah. When you still saw federal raids going in, breaking up uh, dispensaries, like that's historically, that would have been civil war right? Like yeah, it, true. It, yeah. it, it, back in the day when there was a, a closer degree of equality of, of armament, right? Uh, Tyler Cowen's an economist. He calls it government by ox cart, right? Yeah. If you're talking about government in like the 1800s, you're talking about like a guy with a musket. Yeah, like, has to like walk up your driveway and say, Hey, like, can't do that. I'm the <laughs> state. Don't do that. I mean, now it's just a horse of a different co- color in terms of what the federal government has at its disposal in terms of uh, military weaponry and those sort of things. So um, so what I'm trying to demonstrate is like, well, the 50 states seem to go, they, 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 they cluster in their trends much more similarly than does the global sample. Um, and furthermore, I think it's with regard to uh, the prison population rates, I think you can time the federal injection of dollars, you can sort of trace federal earmarks into local jurisdictions with earmarks towards incarceration prior to upticks in crime and prior to upticks in, in, in prison population rates. In other words, they built the jails before they necessarily needed them. Needed them, yeah. Um, and so to me, that puts a lot of oomph in the causational story behind the federal government. 
more so than, oh, this was like an accident. This is a sort of like untended byproduct of, like some people have modeled um, the decentralized 50 states as a race to the bottom. They, they think that like American Puritanism is meaning that Mississippi wants to hang criminals yeah. and Georgia wants to torture them. And like, they're, they're just trying to signal tougher and tougher policies. Um, I mean, that, that's an interesting and compelling story, but it doesn't explain, I think, the, the rapidity and the uniformity of virtually every 50 state getting on the incarceral bandwagon in the 1980s, yeah. the early 1980s, late 1970s. Um, even if even if the, that trend was dominated by a few key states, and but also which key states, Florida, Louisiana, uh, California, and Texas, border states, yeah. states that have a unique a huge states in enforcing federal criminal codes, yes. immigration, drug transportation. Yeah, a lot going on in all those oh. states. Yeah. Oh. Now, are you so we know that as a whole, the U.S. versus Denmark is not even close. Are you seeing though, like let's say you do take a New Jersey or a Colorado and then compare that to another country, it probably fares much better, right? You you get you get a much more smooth distribution, right? So I mean one one of the things is that in the activist world, in the like op-ed or like think piece world, yeah. you can just say, okay, well, who are the OECD countries, the countries that have high economic development? And then say, okay, well, uh, how does America's incarceration rate compare? We look crazy on that comparison yeah. because all those other countries are Denmark, Sweden, uh, Spain, like like good European advanced economies. Sure. They, they're about as big as an individual state. You can find states that have relatively close comparisons because what you'd be doing is throwing out the Californias and the Texas and the yes. Florida's and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but so one, one problem there is, well, what I'm suggesting is that yes, those countries are similar to us when it comes to economic performance. They're decidedly not similar to us when it comes to administering criminal justice, because we have this overlapping layered system of federal crime, state crime, local crime, and the, the legal and financial processes that, that are associated with that. If the EU had its own uh, sort of EU criminal code and EU budget that was injected into local uh, European countries and potentially its own EU enforcement wing that did, that was primarily responsible for enforcing migratory patterns and, and drug distribution channels. I'd expect them to have similar results as, as we've had. You'd see, you'd see a change in the enforcement um, willingness of local regimes to, to get those dollars. You'd see um, probably some major players, uh, eke away like California and Texas and Florida have done. Um, and they'd probably be the ones that have large borders that are difficult to enforce as well as uh, um, multiple major metropolitan areas, yeah. right? I mean, like California has more major metropolitan areas alone than like multiple European countries yeah, together. Exactly. Damn. That's crazy. So we don't compare... Well, well, what, well, so is it good or bad to, <laughs> to do, you know, what I mean? is it to compare the state to the, to a country or just, no. it's obviously bad if we relate I mean, the entire country. Well, one thing is that the two closest countries in our incarceration rates are not 
well-to-do OECD European countries, they're Russia and China. And whether or not we believe their data, right? So like sure. the Uyghurs aren't counted in the China data, the deaths that they administer in terms of death penalties aren't counted in the data. So I don't want to yeah. say that incarceration is just a, a clear or demonstrative proxy for punitivity um, or goodness or badness or anything like that. But I, I mean, so on the one hand, you would say, well, you're throwing those out in order to focus on European countries. That just seems to thumb the scale to say, well, we should be like all these European countries. Yeah. The other implication would be, well, yes, we're similar economically in terms of good performance, but it could be what I'm suggesting, the organizational management of explicitly criminal justice is more similar to Russia, China. Damn. <laughs> that a, our large and active role of federal criminal policymaking and federal criminal financing isn't really matched by developed countries or, yeah, or like, like other large scale quasi totalitarian regimes do that. Um, and that's, I mean, we, I wouldn't say that we've fully succumbed to those forms of totalitarianism or anything like that. I'm just talking about, well, it has this conspicuous effect in the criminal justice arena where we're sort of coping with this behemoth system and a lot of, challenging and um, undesirable outcomes for subsets of our population. Yeah. Um, that we don't have, an, I mean, there, I'm, not, I'm not the only person who has emphasized this sort of like increased federal role. A uh, really great book by uh, a late Harvard legal historian, uh, William Stuntz. It's called The Collapse of uh, American Criminal Justice. Um, and another one by... Um, Naomi Murakawa, the, the last civil right, or the first civil right, I'm sorry. Um, and basically, I mean, they, they, they both sort of similarly track that, like, the, there are all these buzzwords in criminal justice, uh, professionalization and um, programming outcome-based performance assessment, on and on and on. Our, our criminal, the, in the same time as the, as the sort of timeline trend of, of, of the hockey stick of prison population growth, we've had a, a significant organizational overhaul of new federal criminal policies, new money that gets funneled into local jurisdictions, um, new sort of training and managerial mindsets of how local officers are advised and trained to deal with the overlapping yeah. and historically unique uh, parameters of our criminal justice system. So are you pro kind of like more government help with that kind of stuff or not? Um, I, I, I don't know what I'm pro anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, like, I just like being against stuff. Um, <laughs> don't we all? I mean, I think there's obvious low hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, the drug war doesn't pass cost benefit analysis. Like that's obvious. I think a, um, there's a moral position to be made about open immigration and open borders. Um, politically, I don't think that that's very viable. Yeah, that probably wouldn't fly. But I do think that a, much like the tax code, a, a, of, would, would radically improve how we criminalize um, the immigration process. 
us for a lot of people that I mean everybody knows what the DMV is like it sucks it sucks everybody knows that like bureaucracy is like a pejorative word right like nobody wants to be described as bureaucratic yeah um, we we want to avoid that descriptor for things that are as important as law enforcement yeah um, so I'd like to see a lot like something much more similar to like community policing. I'd like to see, um, in, in economics, we call it fiscal equivalence where users pay, right? Like if you're paying taxes for roads that are 10 towns over that you never drive on, that's a problem because yeah. you have a bad incentive for making sure that the roads are good. That makes sense. Um, so the idea that like you could you could employ a bunch of people from one neighborhood to police in another neighborhood. Like that's got some problems in it. Um, I, I don't want to pretend like I know how to train police officers to do their job any better than they already do. It's a, my father was a police officer. My uncle Dennis is a correctional officer. Like everyone in my sort of like boomer generation family are civil servants tied in some way shape or form to criminal justice or fire departments um and even they like my father recognizes that like if you turn on the tv and you watch a commercial to enlist in the police academy it's like heavy heavy metal music and people kicking down doors and it's like be a cop fuck yeah yeah no yeah yeah and like i said well what made you enlist and he was like i graduated from college i like had my diploma and i passed a billboard that said help your community and showed a picture of a cop and a phone number yeah and i knew people who had already been in and it seemed like good benefits and a career strategy and a sort of lifestyle sure of of civil service to like get ahead i mean um so it's obvious that like something about the sort of like size and dimensionality of police is different today than it was when when like previous generations of career oh, officers 100%. first took their jobs. hundred percent. It was the, it was a community policing. It was pe- people yeah. in the community had respect for the police. It was a different relationship. And now it's completely the opposite with most part. And what I think as far as I saw Jocko from uh, was on Rogan a couple of weeks ago, talking about this and he's a former Navy SEAL captain and our commander. And so like what he was talking about as far as, you know, retraining them and make, he said they should be training, you know, 20% of the time, which is a lot of money and stuff, but it makes sense because, you know, if I haven't been in a tussle in 19 months and, you know, I go to the ground with someone and I don't know how to defend myself, yeah. what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to reach oh, for the gun. Yeah. I should go for the gun. So, you know, stuff like that makes sense, but that's, exa- that's a great example of like your dad seeing, okay, I want to help my community and I know my community kind of respects me and has my back too. Now it's way different. Yeah. So uh, fantastic book uh, and scholar who I highly recommend is Peter Moskos. He yeah. just had an op-ed on Spiked, uh, sort of inspired by his observation that the racial diversity of many police departments seems to be greater than the racial diversity at Black Lives Matter protests. Wow. Um, one of... His, in his book, he has this great passage. He, he, he's a sociologist from Harvard. He just enlisted in the police academy in Baltimore. Um, and this like is like recently, uh, like, like when the wire 
was a thing. He was like an advisor for the show. Oh, shit. He, he graduated with a PhD in sociology and he wanted to do a sort of observational description of policing in Baltimore. And so he went to the police chief and was like, will you let me um, go through the police academy? And all he originally wanted to do was just sociology of police academy, yeah. right? And the, he thought that the chief would be like, no, you're an egghead, get out of here. Yeah. But in actuality, the chief was like, we need cops. So I'll tell you what, you can do police academy, but you owe me a year of service after you finish the academy. And he's like, I'm like a nerd with yeah, PhD legal. and you're like, you're cool with that? And he was like, if you go through academy, you'll be cool with that. And so he did that. He did the academy and then he did a year of service. And so he wrote this like fascinating book. That's cool as shit. And one of the things which it's sort of the biggest, uh, it's an example of the sort of like accidental dynamic that might be at play here. Like, so it, it's hard not to place blame with the billboard story of my dad. It's like somebody designed this and like yeah. that asshole. Thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, Gibson guitar factory got raided a few years ago by a SWAT team because they had wood in their uh, warehouse that like didn't abide by union policy in India. It was like the dumbest thing I'd ever heard, but I was like, I can't imagine being the guy in the van and being like, what are we doing? Like, we're going to kick down the door of what? Gibson guitar factory. It's like, I, I would just feel like a schmuck. I'd be yeah, like, like I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. So, so there's a degree where you're like, why did this get as far as it did? But then Moscow's, has this description where he talks about the proliferation of um, dispatch technology. And if you talk to older cops, my, my dad tells stories like this all the time that like uh, they, they were going through all sorts of layoffs and some of the avenues that he had to get rehired um, back in the seventies were doing computer work uh, as, as uh, precincts converted to dispatch technologies. Mm -hmm. And so what he talks about is the effect that, um, new technology adoption in the sixties and seventies had on community policing. So it used to be, you had to wear a silly hat. You had to walk a beat. You had to insert yourself into the community. And part of the, your own incentives of being safe every day meant that you would introduce yourself and you would get to know who was there, who's sort of supposed to be there and who's like otherwise suspicious and that sure. sort of thing. And you deterred crime preemptively by your mere presence as a uniformed police officer. My father used to talk about that this would often sometimes be a loophole where if you were chasing someone and your hat fell off, they could claim in the trial that they didn't know you were a police officer because you weren't in full uniform. What? And so, uh, Moscos's description though really gets into the idea that well fast forward time a little bit and you get to the 1980s and they start applying computer technologies they start applying dispatch where you call 911 you report a crime they walkie talkie to a dispatch you're no longer really walking the beat and replying in real time you're sitting in a squad car at the end of the block waiting to respond after crime already takes place yes yes and so like, again, the financial model where the federal government sort of comes up with extraneous revenues, you hear stories of local precincts being like, we don't really need this right now, but we got the budget and we're spending it. It's a more capital intensive, less labor intensive policing function. And it, and it, it weakens ever so slightly and very like subconsciously 
the good incentives of community policing and in, instead makes the whole bureaucracy sort of like dependent and, and um, embracing and sort of complicit in leveraging like technocratic techniques like, okay, well, like the state says we've got to, we've got to use this form and the state says we've got to use this protocol. Um, it, it basically gets everybody uh, in, in, a, in a compliant mindset uh, and protocol for policing. And I think, I mean, maybe I'm just like romantic, but like, I like, I like diversification. I like experimentation. Yeah. Um, I like uh, somebody should be like thinking critic like that COVID's got me all kind of crazy because I'm like, like no township is doing anything like avant-garde to fix this. Like, yeah. like, like I, I haven't read any stories that like, oh, Paducahville like has UV lights everywhere. Or Kenosha yeah. did prophylactic hydro- hydroxychloroquine. Like, like just I'm just curious things. what yeah. what what people would be doing to try things. Yeah. Early American history that was happening with policing um, until until you got this sort of like massive federal um, intervention style approach. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I see it all the time here in D.C. I go to uh, shopping center, I'll see these giant telephone pole type cameras, you know, doohickey things that are like supposed to surveillance the area and stuff like that. But that takes away from the community feel of cops walking around, talking to people. And that's what Jocko was saying. He's like, initially when they went to war in Iraq, first of all, for a six month tour, they would train for 18 months. Yeah. So they're overtrained for the operation. They go in and they used to just run through towns with their Humvees, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, Petraeus said, no, we're going to go into every single town. We're going to get tight with the community. We're going to know who is who, just like you said, that way when bad things happen and let these people know, like we're here to protect you so from even, those people. Yeah. Even the military operations like are benefited often by more community style organizations. But I mean, getting those incentives right, getting that sort of culture right is, is really hard to do. And yeah. like, it's not obvious. Some of the things are like, I mean, who would have thought that applying walkie, giving out walkie talkies to every juris, uh, police jurisdiction in the United States would have a, a sort of screwed up effect where cops wait for crime instead of being more friendly to more their- More proactive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense when you sort of hear it from cops and read it as a sort of descriptive characteristic of the changing system over time yeah it makes it it's definitely a safer for the cop i think especially nowadays yeah. to kind of wait till the crime has happened that's mm-hmm. why like me personally i'm a I'm, I'm more of a central person like i believe in the second second amendment yes i will call the cops if someone breaks into my house but i'm not going to rely on the cops to come and save me because yeah. i just learned the other day from uh, uh anthony and, and james that by law they don't even have to come in and save me yeah. uh yes which i never knew uh but so also that's not the same for or at least it's being quoted as as different for federal really so for example the um the authority responsible for dispatching federal troops into portland for example he said he's he's read his own job description into the microphone in the news conference and he was like shall i my job shall so will i i shall protect federal property. He's like, it's not May. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I, I can be held liable for if failing to fulfill my duty. If I ignore violations against federal property. Yeah. Right. Police, right. Don't, they don't owe you yeah. necessarily to like show up and respond to your, your break-in. 
Um, They can't be held. Like the guy who didn't go in to the uh, Parkland shooting, right? Like, it's a weird scenario. It's like, like, what's the law on that? I don't know. Um, Yeah, no, I agree. Well, that's what Anthony was telling me. He said, he literally gave me an example of here in DC. There was a, uh, I think it might've been a sorority house or some sort of house. These three women called the police because they had an intruder and the, uh, the cops just drove by and then one lady got assaulted and then they caught again. And this happened over hours. The cops never showed the people sued the three ladies sued the department of DC afterwards. And it went all the way to Supreme court and they were found not guilty because they were by law did not have to come in and save your life. And the whole to serve and protect on the side of a car just is a good slogan that kind of relates <laughs> to the oath that the cops take, but that oath is not a law. Right. That's the oath of the department. So, um, I totally agree with you. I think that, and I was listening to another podcast from Rogan the other day, this woman who's a psychiatrist for police officers was saying like community policing is nothing new. It's not like someone just said, Oh, we should do this. This is a great idea. That's what used to be. And now it's just kind of gone down, you know, shit's Creek, unfortunately. And I think a lot of, uh, and it's unfortunate that technology and social media has allowed these big phrases to happen to where people just get behind it and don't even realize what that really means. Uh, a number of my economist friends, Alex Tabarrok is great on this. Uh, they're trying to sort of rebrand police reform away from defund to instead embrace economics, nerdy talk of debundle. Um, which, which basically means like, like every time you buy something, you're not really just buying that thing. You're buying the bundle of, of service and delivery and branding that, that is encompassed with it. Mm-hmm. So like when you go to a restaurant, you're not just buying the food, you're buying the ambiance, you're buying yeah, the, the service, yeah. the experience. Policing don't just, uh, respond to crimes. They sort of are asked to do lots of things like, and, and this is something that like economists have been sort of harping on for years is like, well, why would you expect that the people who are good at catching murderers, solving crimes, are also good at logistically administering traffic flow? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Or they're psychiatrists or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't get Chinese food at my Italian restaurant. Like they, these are just very diversifiable. Great point differentiable functions. So one question would be like, could we, some of the things that we use police for, could that be debundled? Could we like empower some other organization? But this naturally is going to have growing pains. It's going to, it's going to entail costs. So you mentioned creepy, like totalitarian observation cameras. Yeah. If you, if you want fewer cops on the street, you're probably going to need to come to grips with the potential that, local cities and municipalities are going to find camera surveillance a, a, a desirable thing, right? You, if, if, you're, if you're trimming the budgets that they get from their state coffers and their federal coffers, you should expect them to strive to increase their revenues with camera tickets um, and oh, sort God. of citations and fines. So like that, like those things going up, are probably going to be part of the cost. People are talking about, okay, well, traffic administration, it doesn't seem obvious that you have to have police to do that. I agree with the intuition there, but it's a different circumstance depending on the ratio of gun ownership and the ratio of criminals out in, 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 the, in the population. That's true. So for example, 
like the the worst thing that's happened to a scientific understanding of the criminal justice system is shows like CSI. Yeah. <laughs> um, people people have a delusional uh, perception of how equipped and how sophisticated policing is in any individual jurisdiction, agree, right? Yeah. Like, like if you ask, did you take fingerprints? Yeah. Like ask, ask, ask an officer, like, well, like, did you bring out the lab guys? They're, yeah. Like they're going to laugh at you. They're yeah. like, like, that's it's not real. Not in how that works. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, similar, virtually zero resources are dedicated to apprehending known criminals who have skipped their bail really so let's say you do a crime let's say it's a violent crime you like murder someone or something yeah Um, or or like but it's like the 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 charge is not like murder one it's like aggravated assault or whatever like manslaughter or something yeah but but someone has been violently victimized by what you did yeah you get arrested they bring you to jail you can post bond before your trial right so you can get a bail bond that's a private initiative. Yeah. So the bail bondsman now has a strong incentive to make sure that you show up for trial. So they typically hire like straight up bounty hunters, like dog yeah. or whatever, yeah, to dog, like go yeah. get you. Yeah. Those guys are extremely effective. But like people who, people who either float their bail because it's set low enough. Or, so like people who aren't violent criminals, but well, like you, you bounce checks, you did something fraudulent, sure. whatever. Like let's say you have a $10,000 bail, you get someone who you know to pay that, you front it, and then apart from like knocking on your door, like they don't launch a full-scale investigation. They don't launch a manhunt. Yeah. They, don't, they don't like track you down. They don't like super sleuth and go get you. Yeah, they just catch you when they catch you. The vast majority of the ones who they catch when they catch, they catch because of random traffic stops. Yeah. So it's something about like the new, the, like it, you, you could ask Anthony about this. Like, like it's just the law of large numbers that like you pull over X number of people. You're bound to like get somebody. Yeah. Eight out of 10, 10 crimes go unsolved. Like you're just running the, the plate and, uh, and the on outstanding warrants are done so by accident, not by detective work. Yeah. Right. So if you're saying, okay, well, we're going to turn over all the, all the traffic stops to some sort of civic organization that is going to be less prone to death by cop. Well, now you've got like, like, do you think that a criminal with warrants out for their arrest who has a gun under their chair is going to be copacetic yeah, when right. the like safety patrol officer pulls them over? Like, yeah. like the, a large part of the reason why we have police do the things that they do is because we have a lot of contexts that easily devolve into violence. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think the challenges of policing are ultimately ones about resolving real social problems, like poverty, gangs, uh, everything from single parent households to like, I mean, people are finding men. effect from lead paint remediation like like expect whatever protocol of like a person approaching like if you're gonna have social workers go to do checkup calls on people in their houses yeah. if you're gonna have 
some other type of civil officer pull over cars for traffic violations. I mean, if you have gang members and drug dealers who are otherwise prepared to use violence in that population, even in very small numbers, you're going to exaggerate the risk and willingness of the people on the other end of that to do that job. Um, And when we've done independent things like that, typically the feedback you get is that they request officer assistance. Yeah. Yeah, So you've got, now you've got a system where social workers go for a checkup call, but they're constantly calling the cops. Like, okay, can you come with me on this? Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. I see videos of that all the time. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, man, well, we, Obviously, we don't have all the answers. Yeah. And it, <laughs> there's, there's no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. No, I agree. And I think uh, – I agree. And I think there's, there's – uh, at the end of the day, the community policing thing, I think, was the most effective uh, thing or process that we've had. And I think just removing the bodies from the, the, the communities and stuff like that is just – it was just a bad move. I know it was like, well, there's labor-intensive. It was just more ex- expensive or less expensive to do that. And then they make way more money. These cameras are just like, bro, I get like a new citation like every month and it's like 120 bucks and I don't pay it. And now it's 200. So they make a shit ton of money and not have to put out a lot of, you know, boots on the ground. Also, I mean, those programs in a lot of States, like they don't work or do anything unless you have an enforcement to back it up. Exactly. So in, in New Orleans where I used to live, if you ignored a traffic ticket, um, intentionally or not because people would move and like hurricane katrina hit and stuff and like the postal service in new orleans is not exactly yeah. uh, a pinnacle of uh yeah. of efficiency uh but if you have an outstanding ticket it converts to a criminal violation so if you get pulled over again arrested you can get arrested for warrant so, so i mean like orleans like orleans parish prison the, the like county lockup like a buddy of mine was like in a tuxedo on his way to go play uh bass guitar in a jazz trio at like a wedding got pulled over he's got his livelihood in the back of the car he's wearing silly clothes yeah and they haul him off to like to the county jail and he's like okay so i can come up with eight grand to get out or i can wait 36 hours until my trial yeah so he was like i guess i'm hanging out yeah i'll wait eight grand yeah what that's and he's he's sitting next to like like drug addicts and dealers yeah, someone and, and who's gang like, members and yes. like all sorts of stuff and they're looking at him like you don't belong here no, and he's like yeah no. you're telling me <laughs> listen that is exactly so i lived in pennsylvania right and i think it's a lot of the commonwealth it's a lot of older kind of you know states i've seen this in where you know you get a traffic stop or a traffic citation if you don't pay it or at least request a trial in 10 days they have um a constable i don't know how many times a constable came to my house so once i I was driving back from Philadelphia. I got pulled over because a tag light was out in York, Pennsylvania. And the cop, like, I was going to be a cop. I wanted to be a homicide detective. So I kind of know, like, a little bit of, like, when I see two cops roll up, okay, I know I'm probably going to jail because why would he need backup? You know, whatever. So he pulls me over. He, he tells me, oh, everything's going to be fine, blah, blah, blah. Let's just see if you got any warrants. I had a warrant from a job that I worked at like five years prior where I sold steaks door to door in a township in bumfuck Pennsylvania that I got a citation, a $15 citation years ago. Um, and they spelled my name wrong and gave me the wrong address. So I never got it in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Completely unaware. So then 
they arrest me. They take me to York. My mom is like in Laurel, Maryland. So they were like, okay, it's $180 to get out. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I had no cash on me. I was like probably like 20 years old, 21. I was like poor. So my mom drives all the way up from Laurel, which is like a two and a half hour drive. And they wouldn't let her let me out because they needed exact change. She was like, here's $200. Just just get him out. And I was in there with people that like, this dude just beat his girlfriend half to death with a bat. The cop said, oh, when I get there, I'll make sure your car is good. Everything will be fine. I'll take you back to your car. Complete, dude left me just straight up. Yeah. And I just was like, like over two, not even a $200 ticket that I didn't know about. It was just crazy. I'm like, this is complete waste of taxpayer dollars in oh. my opinion. So, and that happens every day. It has to. So I, I, I guess like my point of bringing stuff up like that is like everything has unintended consequences, unforeseen cause and effect. So like the, the mental framework that I think about whenever I think of like these new proposals, defund the police, do that, do this, sure. whatever. Drug courts is a great example, right? So that's like a debundling, like, hey, let's just have this different court system. Just for drugs, yeah. Just for drugs. I love the sound of that. I, like, okay, maybe there's this some sort of like other procedure that we could do. Maybe we could be more medical and, and rehabilitative in that approach. Sure. However, my concern is like how our democracy works. Voting citizens don't have infinite levels of patience. Yeah. And public opinion gets really frustrated with the idea of repeat criminals. Like, uh, the Bush Dukakis campaign, Willie Horton effects, like that's like a real thing. Yeah. Uh, Dukakis like had, had, had let out Willie Horton and then he went out in like a week's time and raped a person. And everybody's like, well, where did this guy come from? It's like, oh, actually he was released from the system. Like just yes. virtually moments prior. Yeah. That sets a really bad precedent. You can, you can rile up your voting base to like support all sorts of stuff when things like that happen. So, if you have a drug court system and you've got people going in and out of it multiple times, mm -hmm. the second some of their uh, bad behaviors spill into like real visceral crime, yeah. beat his girlfriend, broke into a house to steal money for drugs, people are going to be like, well, wait a minute. You mean to, know, you mean to tell me that this guy's been in and out of your court, your, so, your supposed better drug court for a decade, but you haven't, you haven't done anything to actually protect the community yeah, the, the, the otherwise yeah. innocent citizens like i doubt that the, i doubt it's sustainable if yeah. that's going to be the dynamic that, that that gets bred in it so like yes you can get some like good outcomes in the short run but we we have to think about that sort of like sustainability question of like is this is this really like an equilibrium yeah and and, and at the heart of it it seems like what you could be doing when you add on these like appendage programs is that the incentives it's just expansionist so if we have our current system and then you tack on a drug court system, well, now you've got more secretaries, more workers, more physical capital, more office space, all with tangible incentives where they materially benefit and get paid when more people do drugs and when more people get caught dealing and doing drugs. Yeah. Instead of taking care of it, they're just continuing right. on with the same problem. Yeah. So like whenever I hear a proposal, I'm like, are the, are the incentives that are bundled with this expansionist? Are they going to increase the number of people who benefit from 
crime and crime administration? Or are they genuinely solving problems, right? Yeah. I, think, yeah, yeah. I think repealing prohibition genuinely solves problems. Yeah, I agree. Because prohibition creates incentives for violence amongst traffickers and amongst users. And so, like, I mean, we, that, that ship has sailed. Like, we, know, we learned that lesson in, in the social science community from alcohol prohibition. Like, yep. like, the murder rate just, like, fell when you said, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Um, Which is why I don't understand why they don't do it for major I, – I know, like, major drugs and stuff like that. And I saw um, when they had – when we started legalizing or decriminalizing – I think a lot of people are – Go ahead. I, I'm just saying people – when you get the survey data on marijuana, everybody's groovy, right? Like even sure. like the old school, like Christian yeah. conservative Republicans are like, well, marijuana just seems, you know, fine. You just don't get that support when you're talking about meth and heroin and crocodile and like those sort of things. So even though like, I think experimental drug use is like a civil liberties issue. Like people want, you want to do whatever you want to do in your living room that's not the same thing as being unable to acknowledge that people throw their lives away by being addicted to certain substances oh, for sure. But again, the criminalization offers them like no window out. Nothing. Um, it makes it worse. It makes yeah. their situation even worse because if they're going to go to jail for it, it's like, but that's why like when I saw, we definitely saw like a, uptick in fentanyl in the last couple of years because yeah. of the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana because the cartels had to figure out another a, way a new profit strategy yeah. yeah so you know and that's i think who is it is it denmark that or amsterdam that doesn't portugal legalize? Portugal. Por portugal had blanket decriminalization so they basically just said like guess what drugs we don't care anymore and like now there's like a creepy cottage industry of people exploiting tourists and they're like cocaine, but it's really like salt. Oh my um, God. But say, don't don't they have minimum, places to like, like take care of people in rehabilitation instead of jail? Um, I'm not sure about what, what goes on in Portugal in terms of rehab. But caffeine's a drug. Sure. Tobacco is a drug, alcohol is a drug, but you can get those goods and services in an infinite, infinite variety and specialization to your needs. Like a Starbucks is a caffeine delivery system and you can get like mocha frappuccino, whatnot, like yeah. and freaking rainbow colored sprinkles on top. Yeah. Heroin is the opposite. You, the, the way prohibited markets protect themselves on the supply end is you shove the product refinement onto the customer. Like this happened in the Soviet Union where price controls made it so that bakeries like couldn't, couldn't afford to run the ovens and sell the bread. So they would just sell raw dough, right? Which is essentially like the, the equivalent of like street, street carried heroin, right? You have, to, you have to go home, you have to cook it, you have to get your own needle. You, you have to yeah. do all the extraneous shit. Good markets, right? you would have baristas, so to speak, of Serving all of these other heroin. substances. Oh, you need it, you want it cut this way, you want, it, you want it done that way, you want it done under secure circumstances. And in the high end of the drug market, those things exist. Like yeah. you can get a sort of like trip sitter or uh, uh, like sometimes like high end heroin uh, dealers basically have like a hotel 
and like you like check in to like consume and everything and they like watch you and what <sighs> Um, you hear about those things in international markets and, and like the super high end. Wow. Um, that's just economies of scale. And the other thing that I think is extremely um, important to think about is that different substances are often really useful for getting off of harder substances. Sure. Like, like I might be revealing too much about like the company that I keep, but I don't know anyone who's successfully quit heroin or cocaine without a lot of marijuana on hand yeah um and like different substances uh they I, the, there's a lot of really good reports from psibacillin and mushrooms and stuff oh in, yeah in microdosing all um, stuff. yeah so i mean the ability to experiment and figure out well what works for people i i i don't know that many people with extreme drug habits who aren't who don't acknowledge that they wish like no one who smokes cigarettes wants to smoke cigarettes yeah I don't know that many people who do meth who are like, yep, and yep. like, this Can't is what I want to do, do with meth. my life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, you're right. And they're doing the uh, test on, on soldiers for PTSD with the um, psilocybin and the um, um, DMT and stuff like that. And they're seeing yeah. a ridiculous, you know, ridiculous results in a positive way, which is yeah. telling with the psychedelic act of whatever Nixon did back in the... Yeah, uh, the results I've read about effective quitting of, of cigarettes is like earth shattering like public health issue earth shattering with with the help of that stuff yeah people like the the observational reports of lifetime smokers are like i never smoked a cigarette again after a single trip wow like that's crazy i don't i don't know if they've done like randomized control trials but like it's consistent repeated report they do it for like harder substances and stuff too that like individual trips are like a reflection point it's, it works as like a sort of cognitive reset so yeah to speak. yeah 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 but but cigarette smoking especially is like it's something that i like i vape that was the only thing that worked for me to quit cigarette smoking yeah i know how physically uh habit forming and addictive cigarette smoking is to say that there are people who have a success just by doing like a single mushroom trip is like like we could be saving tons of money yeah in, cancer lung heart health yeah <laughs> if you just gave these people something that is virtually harmless yeah exactly and if it didn't work on them guess what it didn't kill like, them it didn't okay. make it worse yeah exactly but, but they they now think that like we're all made of energy and like yeah yeah right <laughs> they're all tripping balls yeah like, that's so funny cool man well I think it's been like over an hour. I think it's, uh, we, we went down the rabbit hole a little bit, yeah. but um, is there any like last words, anything you want to say? Any like, do you have a book you're writing or anything? Like kind of. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a pro the, the project right now I'm doing uh, is what I was mentioned, mentioning earlier about um, this data comparison where you treat each individual state like a country. Yes. Um, and like the, the preliminary results I've got out of that is just that yes, the 50 states are a unique cluster relative to the others. It hinges critically in the 1980s. So I think that works against an argument that it's because of our decentralization. I think it alludes to 
an, uh, an implication that, okay, the federal government has a, a very particular role. And that's deceptive because if you just look at the, the data, if you just look at prison population rates, your impression would be like, like when we, we started talking before you hit record, you said, oh, it's like everybody's in a private prison. And I said, no, actually like a, a, a super minority of inmates are in private prisons. Yeah. Um, a larger percentage of, of private prisons are at the federal level and largely um, financed and, and solicited by INS. Wow. Um, so essentially they were like, well, we have to enforce immigration protocols. What do we put, where do we put these people? And they were like, well, just build a new specialized facility just for them. Similar with juvenile facilities, private, yep. private prisons basically do the things that need uniqueness to them. Right. Which, which should be revealing about the weaknesses of our system that like we've become very monolithic. We've become very one size fits all when the realities of crime across the jurisdictions in the United States is anything but one size fits all. I was going to say, that's, it's, right. that's not the case. <laughs> like, it's not even one size fits all within a state. No. Like, like policing New Orleans, Louisiana is radically different than policing Shreveport, Louisiana. Sure. Um, policing Miami, Florida is radically different from policing Arkansas. Like, yep. um, so uh, empirically, like the, the, that's the dynamic that my work is trying to speak to. And my it's funny because like doing things like this in uh, or, or having conversations with people in the current moment of our time, uh, post George Floyd, post black lives matter, everybody's like, man, it must be great to, to see so much attention on your topic. Yeah. And I'm like, no, nah. Nah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, sucks. Like, well, like, like 80% of what I hear people say is just like ill-informed or downright wrong. Yeah. Um, or, really dangerous in terms of exaggerating the dynamics that I think are ultimately leading everything, right? Making Makes criminal sense. justice a national policy issue of activism. The way our national polity responds to problems is we throw money at stuff. That's yeah. like all we're, we, we throw money in guns. Like that's yep. what a government does is yeah. it, it can spend money and it can bomb things. Yeah. Um, well, we've already got a problem where it's bombing things so throwing my intuitive to the incentives of our federal administration system to for it to spend less um and so that that concerns me a lot uh talking to to people whether it be online or in person about activism surrounding criminal justice i'm i'm pretty shocked regularly about how little understanding there is about what is our criminal justice system like what things are criminal what things are criminal at the federal level versus state level like how that dynamic works what your yeah. rights are as a citizen uh oh. when interacting with the police i mean we live in a moment now with all the 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 body cam and the and the cell phone footage george floyd I lost you there. After the camera started rolling, this just looks Can you hear me? really tremendously, but yeah, I can hear you. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah um, I lost you at George Floyd. Oh, um, I was just saying the, the Floyd tape is like 
the first unambiguous example where everybody is like, this is despicable. This is yeah. really probably I haven't heard one person say yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Do- doesn't matter what happened before. doesn't matter no. what happened after. It was like, this is ex- excessive. Yeah. It was this unnecessary. <laughs> like every yeah. cop I've, I've talked to is like, why didn't they put him in the car right away? Same. Um, so I, I wholly agree with that. Um, my colleague here at Brown, Glenn Lowry, um, he himself is African-American. He's really frustrated by the default racialization. Um, he's like, we don't, we don't know if the guy responsible is necessarily like a Klansman. Yeah. Uh, we don't know if this is an act of stupidity. We don't know if this is an act of malice. We don't know if this is an act of two people who knew each other for a long time beforehand and there was explicit beef between them. None of that's conveyed in the, in, in the video. No. So there's some concern about like default racializing these topics. I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand on that. I definitely think that African-Americans in the United States have a reasonable complaint insofar as the expansion of criminal justice and policing is disproportionate. It, it, it affects them most viscerally and in ways that it doesn't affect other communities. For sure. Like it, upwards of a quarter African-American men between 18 and 35 go to jail, which means that the gender ratio in the black community is really screwed up. Yeah. And it's really hard to discipline 14 to 18 year old men without adult men around yeah exactly yeah um and that i mean the, that's confirmed in like like if you read social workers stuff like the the anecdotal reports they get are mothers who are calling the police on their own sons because they're like he I could beat me i can't do this I can't yeah, exactly. I, like, like yep. this is beyond my capacity to do anything sure. so when you take um, the men away that 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 goes away as well yeah um now i'm not saying the the implied counterfactual here is like well if those guys who you're arresting were criminals, then would they do more harm back in those communities than they otherwise would? Sure. Um, again, there's no, there's no solution. There's only trade-offs to these things. But again, it's like making it a national policy issue lacks the local on the ground knowledge. It lacks the sort of like experience learning. It lacks a lot of the potential to really succeed at community policing. If it's the, if it's the case that community policing has potential benefits yeah um that's so true so, that makes so much sense <laughs> so i mean like like my default when i see footage prior to to george floyd is i really don't know what i'm looking at it doesn't surprise me at all if lots of ordinary people look at this and think that they're seeing police do illegitimate things but i think they don't really know what the letter of the law is or what typical police protocol entails i mean um and like so the there was the shooting in georgia where wendy's yeah the guy like took the taser and then got fired i'm like according to the letter of the law like i doubt that much is going to happen to this officer um now the immunity and and yeah all the things that go with that um or sometimes, I mean, one of the big things that's surprising, I came across stats where like consenting to searches is higher amongst black suspects than white suspects. And it's like, if you just, if you watch police, like reality TV shows, like cops and whatnot, they're like, is it okay if we can search your car? People are like, yeah, I guess so. And then they find a bunch of drugs. I'm like, why would you say yes? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but, but if they say no, they go to jail. 
but you definitely go to jail if they find all your drugs. <laughs> well, don't, they, don't, don't, isn't there like a loophole to where, because if they, if they say no and they say, okay, we're well, going to jail and now we have your car, we have possession of it. Now we can search yeah. it. I mean, uh, I don't think that they can search it once you, they, they have to get the clearance. They, they buy themselves time. Yes. But like every, every lawyer I've ever met, especially with regard to like, uh, like drinking and driving and stuff like that. They're like, don't blow a breathalyzer. Yeah. Like, oh, but if you don't, you go to jail. And it's like, well, you definitely go to jail if you, uh, if, if you, you blow, blow with yeah. alcohol on, yeah. on your breath. And so like, uh, again, like the, the strictest protocols for like citizen rights is like, ask for a lawyer, ask for a lawyer, ask for a lawyer. All of that is only useful if cops abide by the rules yes. themselves. Yes. So, um, I mean, that's obviously a, a big matter of concern uh, that again, you would, you would expect if, if you're upping the training, upping the, 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 um, the sort of labor. Yeah. Uh, the community side of it, the community, community side of it. Yeah. That you would have a stronger track record of whether or not people were field ready, so to sure. speak. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. The accountability would be there. I feel like. Hopefully. Yeah. If um, that was the case. But I mean, my my own point is just like lots of public attention to any particular topic. I mean, we know what survey data looks like on complicated questions, right? Like ordinary Americans would not pass uh, the the um, exam for citizenship. Right. Ordinary Americans yeah, yeah. have a hard time like pointing out their own state on a map. Ordinary Americans have no idea what like the federal budget looks like, how much money we spend on aid, how much money we spend on military, how much like ordinary Americans don't know the dynamics of how the criminal justice system works, making it an activist issue. And it, like, I mean, I'm going to come off as sounding sort of like skeptical of, democ of democracy. The group, our populists were good at complaining. <laughs> yeah, uh, but sure. that's not to say that we should be empowered with our ideas to be brought into reality unless those ideas are actually workable. Um, it, like, it, I mean, if you asked someone who, uh, ask a chemist, right? Like, <laughs> like, do you think that we, that like the popular vote should determine what drugs get funding? They'd be like, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> ask, ask a civic engineer, like, like should the popular vote get to decide which bill, we use for a bridge they'd be like no like like stuff would fall down like all the time like or yeah. the masses are dumb when it comes to engineering when it comes to, to to chemistry i agree most of how people think about criminal justice issues is is prone to all the similar forms of error and ignorance and and confusion as as those like obviously scientific endeavors so it's not obvious that like just empowering the democratic electorate is a good thing especially when historically when we can think of and point at oh well policing seemed to work there it was very very localized yeah it wasn't it wasn't like oh i've got solidarity solidarity with these people in 20 states away it's like you realize that the police department of minneapolis has virtually nothing to do with the police department of providence yeah exactly like, yeah wholly different people wholly different training protocols wholly yeah. different legal systems that are being enforced like mm -hmm um different populations everything yeah. yeah everything everything's just different yeah so i mean one thing would be like we should call them like baseball teams it should just be like something totally like, don't even call them police call them like minneapolis or yeah. something call them the washington football team yeah so i i get really like 
just because when you when you actually talk to activists and you're like okay so what do we do apart from like showing up to a march or something it's not obvious that that there's a lot of good proposals on the table there yeah there really isn't i haven't seen really anything except for you know like what i said earlier as far as police reform and like stuff like that yeah th- there really isn't anything and, th- and even like you said earlier like the, all of no matter what is done there's still yeah. gonna be growing pains are still gonna be and I, I i do find it a little conspicuous that like race dynamics are elevated in the messaging relative yeah. to war to, to the war on drugs yeah because the war on drugs just seems like such obvious low-hanging fruit like and and i've had i've had conversations where it's weird like like i think in nets right i don't care what the distribution of of like who gets accosted by the police I'm, i would just say okay that's a very like refined question um the magnitudes are not obvious yeah. right like and last i would just say well let's just reduce the net right if it's true that the majority is disproportionately uh affecting african americans or other minority groups then reducing the net should address that sure like naturally yeah um and i've had i i mean i've had conversations where people are like no that's not enough or that's that's just not what we're what we want that's not and what i'm we like want, yeah i'm like so you mean to tell me that if we leave the nets alone but flish, flip the racial dynamic you're cool all of a sudden like yeah like that's i don't think that that's the right way to go about it and and in fact like accomplishing refined um changes in the distribution of outcomes is probably really, really costly and difficult to manage. So yeah. reshaping nets is like, hey, guess what? We're not going to put anybody in jail who does drugs. Like, yeah. like that, that. That's a that very would dramatically bust. change things and not cost a shit ton of you know. Yeah. Um, so it the ability of the of the activist movements to 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 hone in on things that seem obviously like cost benefit good bets uh gives me pause for concern <laughs> that's fucking crazy man no well that uh, that makes a lot of sense and i think that you know hopefully in the next coming months or whatever or years you know things will change to where our conversations like this aren't going to be you know so racially or so racially motivated or just kind of motivated in ways that like aren't going to take us anywhere. Cause to your point, like there's so many things that could probably be done that won't cost millions of dollars that will probably lessen you know, or be more effective in a less amount of time. And yep. I, like when you don't tell people what they want to hear and it doesn't fit the agenda yeah. that they want, it doesn't work. I mean, I can't think of anything that would be more influential in growing American citizens' tolerance of militarization than burning buildings down. Literally. <laughs> so it's like it like it like this is a weird dynamic with street protests specifically yeah. and policing. Because it's like if you if you cause civil unrest even even if unintended right like sure. okay i i like i totally get what peaceful protesting is all about but like boycott is a peaceful protest like petitions are peaceful pro- like there's there's lots of ways to protest yeah and that are Mar- super effective <laughs> yeah Mar- marching in the street 
we should acknowledge a little bit, like it has this capacity to get co-opted. It has this capacity to go bad. You got a, a big horde of people together and they're really angry and really upset. And if you're, if you, if you take a third party perspective, you're an ordinary citizen, you don't live in that city. Well, now all of the conversations of saying, well, cops probably shouldn't have tanks. Cops probably shouldn't have Humvees. Cops probably shouldn't have Kevlar vests or explosive devices or all of this other stuff. But then how do you respond yeah. to full-scale riots? How do you combat that yeah. so without those weird, things? <laughs> yeah, there's a weird capital complementarity. And this is what I mean by like, well, I'd like, I'd like to see more labor-intensive policing than capital-intensive policing because capital, the, the material of, of weaponry, of enforcement, lends itself to all sorts of stuff. Exactly. A gun that, a gun that shoots soldiers abroad is just as good at shooting criminals domestically. Yep. And like the helmets and like all, all sorts of those things lend themselves to these other things. And once you've got it, it's difficult not to expect it to be relied upon. If I was a cop, I would be like, yeah, I want the best equipment I of can course. have. My, my I want to go home. Yeah, I want to yeah. see my wife and kids. Yeah. No, exactly. So all of those natural incentives just fall in place from there. And, and man, I mean, it's like... Like I, I am waiting with bated breath about how these November elections turn out. Yeah, There's a too. lot of social science that like civil unrest is it was part and parcel of like building the, the public opinion for the tough on crime legislative overhaul in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, the, the civil rights uh, movement and, 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 and civil unrest there. Omar Wasau has a really cool paper on this where he basically says like there's two equilibriums, right? Like the, the super peaceful protesters get beat up a bunch mm -hmm. and public opinion is like, well, they're in the right and you pass the Civil, civil Rights Act. Yeah. The other is there's violent protests and you get tough on crime laws. And he actually like coded jurisdictions, how far in proximity and the magnitude of the riot was. And that was hugely influential on flipping from Democrat to, to Nixon administration support. Wow. Um, so that a direct correlation. Like he, he couldn't find anything with stronger correlation than that indicator. Wow. Damn. So I imagine what this is going to be like in no. November. <laughs> well, the question is, is like, how will the perception be? Sure. And the weird thing is like the timing elements all, all matter here. Like, like the survey data from the week after George Floyd actually got, uh, got killed is very different from what it is now after weeks of, uh, of civil unrest. Um, so, I mean, like, I'm not really like, I'm not on a political team by any stretch. I'm not yeah. pro Trump. I'm not like, I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not pro Biden. I'm not anti-Biden. Yeah. Like I I'll, I'll say like my, my mother gasps, but I don't vote. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the question is, is like, are we, are we going to be another data point in, in an otherwise uh, reasonable interpretation of, of political science that, that, that riots <laughs> grow voting support for tough on crime policies or is the sort of public sentiment of black lives matter going to going to dominate i don't know the answer to that yeah i um, think it's very much up in the air right now <laughs> yeah. yeah man all right well that's crazy dude well hopefully we can talk again hopefully maybe even after yeah. november and we'll see we'll see yeah, what man. uh what happens but man i really appreciate you finally being able to you know or me finally being able to 
put this together and talk because I definitely have been interested in your ideas and what you've been doing in your research as far as the prison stuff. And we talked about a lot of other shit too, but super informative. So I really appreciate you coming on, man. Can you tell me a bit more about like your podcast? Like I've watched yeah. a couple episodes, like yeah. uh, listening to the ones with, uh, with James and, and, uh, and Anthony. Yeah. Um, but like, are you, you're, you're like aiming to be the diet Coke Joe, Joe Rogan or. Uh, yeah. But yeah, basically like <laughs> I'm like the, the Sam's club version I'm trying to do. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, not even so like, I mean, obviously he's done this for years. And he's I target did- your Walmart. Yeah, yeah. Oh shit, the Walmart. I'll be fucking. I'm Kmart, man, or not even that. I'm like a boutique. I, like a quickie uh, mart. Yeah, literally. I'm not not even close. I just like having conversations with interesting people. And yeah, sure. living in DC, I've actually encountered a lot of them, and then worked with IHS, so I already knew a lot of professors and stuff. Oh, I didn't and, know that you yeah. did stuff with IHS. Yeah, I did a lot of videos for them. I did. Um, I did a couple Anthony's videos. I did a couple. Um, the dinosaur one. I did a bunch yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Done with Peter Jaworski. Worked with him a lot. Um. But yeah, so that's, I started reaching out to people that I've actually worked with. I'm like, Hey, you're fucking smart. I'm dumb. Let's have a conversation. So, you know, and I think it's, it's done well. I've talked, I, I mean, some of my episodes are with my best friends that we just talk about conspiracy theories, but you know, a lot of the stuff I'm talking to like pretty, pretty cool people that have a really good and strong, informative, educated opinion that I, I'm just constantly learning stuff. So that, that was the main, it was really just made out of curiosity because I wanted to know about certain stuff really. Yeah. What's now, your conspiracy theory du jour? Oh, man. Don't, dude, don't even get me started. Listen, I'm on this Wayfair kick right now. I know James hates me for this, but he's like, dude, you're fucking crazy. But I am definitely, I'm actually trying to interview the person who, um, or a, a subject that is ahead of uh, a giant organization here in Maryland that goes after pedophiles and stuff like that. So I'm, yeah. I'm very much into the Pizzagate um into you know getting suicided and stuff like that just because you know where there's smoke there's fire but i mean 9-11 is an obvious one and i don't like to talk about that much because it's so popular and it's so you know whatever but i just think there's a there's definitely a a puppet master i don't know who (laughs) or where but there's somebody orchestrating a lot of this shit i um COVID has been really weird in my social media circles, especially with regard to conspiracy theory. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm a free speech absolutist. I, I consume a lot of conspiracy theory content. That's a wholly different claim from I ascribe Uh, to any particular conspiracy theory. Like I enjoy watching ridiculous conspiracy theories. Yes, I do too. Um, I, I tell people that one of the one of the best educations I ever had in archaeology, something I know nothing about, yeah. was watching the debunk video about the ancient aliens show. So there's like a four hour documentary of a guy who like knows something about archaeology and he's like, How'd they build the pyramids? Like this, sleds. Like really? there's a picture of sleds. There's like 30 articles in archaeology journal, whatever. And I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know how to navigate all of that academic wow. literature the way I do my own. So I learned a tremendous, a lot like, like learning the bad way to think something or, yes. or like a bad, like logical argument is a great way to like refine and hone your ability to, to a spot fallacies and yes. then be like subject your own ideas to like the, the types of exploitation that can happen with those things. So I think it's a great, um, I, like I, I know that there's like a private public dynamic with like YouTube censorship and whatever. And like yeah. YouTube is a company that can do whatever they want, yeah. but like, it's a hilarious because it's like, 
9-11 conspiracy theory videos is why YouTube is what it's it is. Popping, like, exactly, like, yeah. Like, and now with Wayfair, I'm like, the internet ain't been this lit since like <laughs> January, since September 12th. Like, that's what I'm saying, dude. Like, yeah, um, no, that's so spot on. And, and in addition to that, now you've got overt like intervention and control over messaging on social media platforms over this COVID stuff. Yeah. And it's like, like it doesn't matter what the substance of the of the conspiracy is. You're talking about the doctors with the hydrochloroquine and stuff. Or, or you, they won't let you talk about vitamin C. Yeah, that's, yeah, the stuff that you could literally d- dissolve a lot of this stuff is by taking care of yourself. You, you, yeah, like like you're not allowed to be like, hey, go for a jog, and like like yeah. here's how to improve your immune system if you're mentioning COVID in in the context of it. I mean, yes. that's bizarre. Again, I prefer the experimentation, like. Like let people figure things out and like like try to do stuff. And it seems like a lot of the messaging is just the opposite around that. Yeah. And this is all in line with, or at the same time, as the fact that we're at just like historic lows in trust yeah. of like a lot of major institutions. So like, have you ever talked to Steve Davies? Uh, the English guy? Yeah. I reached out to him a bunch of times, but he hasn't got back to me. So he's totally awesome. And yeah. he has been beating this drum that he calls the great realignment for like a decade. Really? And he, he, he predicted like Trumpism, Brexit, like all of these things. Damn. And it's, it's a very intuitive little model that he describes where it's like, okay, look, winning politics or like the equilibrium of left-right paradigm in the Western developed world is about how the different political parties appeal to these overlapping interest groups, right? The left was things like labor unions, ethnic minorities, immigrants, and the right was like Christian conservatives and constitutionalists and whatever. And basically what he said was that in the last 20 to 30 years, a number of the interest groups on each of these sides feel displaced and so you've got a lot of people like sort of moving like unionists in the american context went for trump they went for brexit these are traditionally left-wing political movements who because of concerns about immigration concerns about global trade were like oh now all of a sudden I'm i'm a conservative uh jewish populations with with uh tensions between um uh the Islamic world and, and Jewish relations, it's like typically on the left, but like the more orthodox uh, you, uh, your voter is in, in Judaism, the more they tend to be with, uh, with right wing politics, yeah. for example. So there's these subgroups within each of the sort of sides of the political platform that seem to be migrating a little bit. And Steve calls this the great realignment. And it's like a lot of other people are just like, oh, populism, like, the, like this is just populism. Yeah. Well, he he actually has a more nuanced story to that. But in watching the way people are reacting to the media amidst COVID and the role that conspiracy theories are essentially playing across a whole ton of stuff, like like, like Epstein scandal gets oh, linked to COVID, gets linked to like all this other stuff. Yeah. Like, I worry that a major dividing line in terms of American politics will be on whether or not you accept or reject whatever the like mainstream or elite position is. Yeah. 
And so it's, it's not necessarily going to be, Oh, like, like I know people who are like, yeah, like, like listening and talking about conspiracy theories is like a hobby. Yeah. Most people like, they don't even, they don't know anything. Like, like, like if you're like 1909, they're like, that's just a number. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, I know. Like, (laughs) um, like, like nobody, nobody heard the word frazzle drip at like a cocktail party that I had been to. And I was like, really? Like, are you even on the internet? Yeah. What the fuck? Um, but, but I worry that essentially there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to conspiracy theory stuff, but do feel a sense of animosity and skepticism towards media and entity, social media, yeah, uh, government, et cetera. And like this, this is why I think the free speech issue matters a lot because like you don't want free speech to be a fringe position that only, that only conspiracy theory people care about. Yeah, you want exactly. it to just be like the thick default. Yeah. And like, like the other thing is like, I think uh, there's, evolutionary biologist guy uh, Hitchens no the selfish gene he he makes it seem like like religiosity is like the death knell of civilization yeah and like my reaction to that is like infinite dearth of stupidity like there's no shortage of dumb beliefs that that people might hold on to yeah so Infinite. like the censorship in my view is, is far worse than, than putting up with dumb beliefs. Yeah. And it's also just not obvious that there isn't anything but a Streisand effect happening when you actually purge the beliefs. Like the pandemic video is pr- probably got more hits on BitChute because it got booted off of YouTube. Yeah. Like as someone who conspiracy theory content, when somebody's like, Oh, this got banned off of YouTube. Oh, it's been, it's been kicked yeah. off of these Reddit profiles. I'm like, yeah watch yeah go right to it yeah no, like, that, those yeah, are the ones like, that you really got to pay thing attention I to watch. Like, exactly yeah, yeah. Well, well that's what like so, the epstein thing really got me because it was kind of like oh they fucked up they got caught i mean he was caught in 05 i don't know how to work pdfs what what's that federal bureau of investigation doesn't know how to oh, doesn't yeah, know right. how to work a pdf <laughs> well it's crazy to me that like just for the clinton thing and this this is probably why this video is not going to do well at all on youtube if it doesn't get banned but the fact that this man was on a plane 26 times, proven 26 times. I've known people for 25 years, my best friends. I haven't flown with them one time. Why the fuck would I fly with somebody 26 times to their private island for whatever reason? So, and I, I you know, and then he dies and it's just, there's so many things that went perfectly right for, for that to end how it did. And now we have uh, just Lane that's, that's coughing up, records and this and that. So I wonder how long until her trial next year she lasts if she doesn't get killed. But there's just, it, I don't know. It's just, there's too much out there for something not to be right or not to kind of be true. I can't speak for, for the truth or falseness of, of any of those inferences, but I do think it's funny because with the, the Epstein didn't kill himself meme, <laughs> Like this is like like maybe like two years ago or whatever. Yeah. Like like everybody was like posting it and whatnot. And yeah. like, I mean, I hang out with mostly academics. Like teacher Brown. Like everybody's like pretty pretty fancy. But like yeah. that that's like a like most people would never want to be associated as a conspiracy theorist by any stretch in my in my circles. Yes. Nor would I. Yeah. 
Um, that's why I explain, I try to explain clearly. I'm like, I like watching conspiracy theory videos. It doesn't mean that I believe exactly of them. Yeah. You're not but, like a tinfoil hat wearing motherfucker. But if you just asked people like pretty straightforwardly, do, do you believe that, that he killed himself? Um, a lot you, of people. You, you do not get straight answers, even from people who would really hate to be considered conspiracy theorists. Michael Shermer, um, perfect example. He is the one that he's like, he's got an answer for everything. He goes on Rogan all the time. Like, you can't tell him. He doesn't believe in conspiracy theories or anything like that. This is the one time when Rogan had him on, and he was like, he asked him about Epstein, and he was like, eh, this is this is a conspiracy theory. This is, this is legit. Like it, it was so funny. Cause it's someone like you just said that would never want yeah. to associate themselves with someone that's talking about lizard people, you know, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is my go-to, but anyways. Yeah. Like the Ike stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I, I dude, don't even get me started, man. Just fucking UF. I mean, look at the UFO shit. We that like, bro, I, we, we have a program. We have a budget that's going to UFO research right now. I mean, the, th- the thing that I find intriguing, so like, like the part in which this sort of like hobby interest of mine relates to my real research is that like the, his- the historical investigations and data that we have about the FBI are kind of crap. <laughs> um, really? I mean. What do you mean, like Hoover and stuff? Um, I just mean like, like you, you set up this interview, you're talking to me, I know a ton of stuff about the criminal justice system and the history of policing as it relates to prison populations. Yeah. That's like my beat. Yeah. I read all the stuff about that. So it's like, if you said, okay, America has a prison system, my job is to know a lot about its history, its operations, gotcha. what changes when, how, when, and where. Um, for the life of me, there really aren't that many people who focus on the CIA or FBI yeah. as organizations that need institutional histories and that we should pay attention to for understanding how they operate. They just exist. And the few, the few investigative reports I've seen about them are written by like journalists and they basically, they're, they're redwashed is, yeah. is how I would describe them is that they basically make out, j edgar hoover as like just part of the red scare and like oh look at these people in the 50s and 60s and 70s they were just so freaked out by communism that they did all these terrible things yeah and now we're not so our fbi is back to being like fully trustworthy and whatnot and yeah um i mean like chris coin is is awesome on military stuff like 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 post-war reconstruction like uh robert higgs similarly like they're both like sort of political economists of war right so like here's a feature of the government that matters the the military apparatus and they know all of it inside and out and like we don't we don't have a lot of good people who do that with the fbi and the cia and as i was explaining that like the fbi is the investigation slash enforcement wing when it comes to federal crime yeah for the government um, and a major player in forestalling organized crime. Yeah. And organized crime had like huge, huge actions in the course of the 20th century and today. Yeah. And 
so like we don't we don't have like full scale transparency about those things. If you empower the federal government to have a sense of authority and discretion over like how you allocate money, then they're gonna make trade offs in terms of well yeah we're gonna put up with some police brutality because we're catching serial killers. Yeah, we're gonna put up with some police brutality or militarization because we're, we're catching yeah. we're taking down the mob. Like I got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, um, that's that's gonna be the byproduct of making criminal justice a national issue. Sure, um, and those those organizations are just not as transparent. They're not as reflective of local needs, preferences citizen accountability, like none of those things are as effective when you're talking about things that are otherwise like secretive that are empowered with executive authority from the federal government. I mean, it's, it's complicated. No, definitely. Um, It's funny. You said I was actually supposed to um, interview an F I have a quite a few FBI friends that I'm going to be interviewing. And uh, I was supposed to interview one the other day and we had it scheduled and everything. And he, he, he canceled on me because he was said, he couldn't be associated with the word explicit or whatever. And he didn't want to, whatever. I was like, okay, dude, listen, like it's not. Oh, like in the title of your podcast. Yeah. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Cause he makes a lot of his money doing speeches and he, you know, people, he doesn't want to pull up in a Google search, but I'm actually going to be interviewing um, the woman who was the first person to interview the Unabomber when they caught mm. him. Um, so like, I really want to dive into like why, cause it is very almost like a secret society, the feds, the CIA, the, a lot of those agencies don't have, like you said, transparency to the general public other than like, oh, it's just like the feds or it's like, you know, you see it on TV show, like Criminal Minds or something that's like, it's cool, but it's like, I don't know. I think you're making a good point of the fact that it's very non-transparent when it comes to a lot of the stuff of how they originated, what they're really doing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, like... um the the sort of subtopic of like mass shootings and terrorism yeah like because we have a division of labor where we expect that to be the role of the federal government relative to local crime um i mean to me that stuff's interesting there's an inverse relationship between serial killers and mass shooters sure right which which i think makes a lot of sense in economic terms because it's really hard because of improvements in technology, because of credit card tracking, because of closed caption surveillance to be a serial killer. Right? Super like, hard. Like to, you, we are better at tracking criminals across state lines. Like uh, there was the, the young girl who was the victim of uh, her mom, uh, Munchausen by proxy. And she like tricked her boyfriend on the internet to kill her mom. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, that, that movie they made. Yeah. Rosie or uh, um, Patricia Arquette played the yeah. mom. Oh fuck, I forget her name. But like the feds were like, it's like they wanted to get caught because like they were delusional and oblivious that oh you're on camera everywhere you go. Like they didn't yeah, know anything. Exactly. Um, and then the other thing is that, uh, so it makes sense if you're if you're if you think in terms of rational choice like economists tend to do. And you're like, okay, well, what is this person trying to do? Um, I think terrorism is really interesting because it makes sense in much the same way as guerrilla warfare makes sense. It's like the American military is a behemoth institution. If you live in a desert and are poor, like conventional warfare isn't going to stop the drones and, and troops on your street. So that's like really the only tool at your disposal is hijacking planes or or doing things like that. Um, As 
as that logistically becomes more difficult, you'd expect them to, you'd expect people to sort of find a different avenue to pursue their goal. So we see fewer like serial killers because it's logistically more difficult, but mass shootings are logistically easier because there's festivals like all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely big populations of people and yeah. So I mean, even just schools, like school shootings and whatnot, schools are just more populous than they were 50 years ago or whatever. So, So we see the sort of uptick on those trend lines and common across both of them, I think is a vindication of this presumption of rational choice. If only because a lot of them in the manifestos and stuff say that they're aiming for kill counts. Yeah. Yeah. That, like they're trying to leave a mark on a legacy yeah, of just like, like these a serial type of killer people. would. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting so I think, correlation. I think that makes a lot of sense. Actually. I mean, I think, I think the way in which the way in which people like think about policy resolutions to these problems is like not, not on the mark per se, no. but like, but yeah, I think I, the other thing about, can, I think that the way our media and our intellectual discourse interact with conspiracy theory serves as like a canary in the coal mine. Um, in large part, like what we're seeing with regard to COVID and like censorship type stuff, it's like the people saying the ridiculous stuff are going to be the first who feel new interventions of, of, uh, of media control and regulation and, and, and violations of free speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The mask wearing, like the people that are on Congress being like, you can't make us wear a mask. And like, they said some wild shit that I'm well, like, like the, the logical flaws of conspiracy theory also aren't unique to conspiracy theory. Yeah. Like, there are professional academics, credentialed publications that are just sure. as victim of sampling on the dependent variable, drawing inferences where you shouldn't like, yeah. like connecting dots that shouldn't be connected. I yeah. mean, so again, like, I think like recognizing that, no, it's not that there's a special realm of things that we deem conspiracy theory, but instead being like, there's rigorous social science with controls, with experimentation, with scientific methods. And like a sort of slow decline and smooth distribution of things that deviate from that, including conspiracy theories. Yes. Um, and the, the whole sort of, uh, uh, smearing of, of particular things as conspiracy theory and, and censoring, uh, creates a dynamic where it's difficult to, to parse those things. It is. It's definitely very difficult to tote the line of someone taking them serious or, and it's easier to be like, oh, that guy's fucking crazy. He's outside the White House yeah. in a tent acting a fool. He's not going to have anything that's making any sense or anything like that. So, Super crazy. weird, though. It is super but like, weird. But, like, I'd be, uh, irrespective of podcasts, I'd be curious to to hear your rantings about Pizzagate anytime. <laughs> oh, dude, no, listen. That is that is definitely – we could have that conversation for sure uh, if you want to come on again, for sure. Because I think I would – I could talk about – uh, conspiracy theories all day. I got a buddy of mine who I'm going to have on who's like super smart and just not the tinfoil hat wearing. Like you can't throw him away. He's not like an academic, but he's just a smart, intelligent person. And like the stuff that he says is like, just real quick, one of the, okay, you know the Boys and Girls Club of America? Yeah. Are you familiar with who one of the co-founders is? Yep. 
yeah, Epstein's grandfather is one of the co-founders of like, uh, I don't know what to say to that. It could be just a coincidence, but I just understand that like a lot of pedophile rings when they have direct access to underprivileged children, that's where a lot of that stems from like the Sandusky up in Penn state. He had a nonprofit organization for foster homes where he was getting a lot of his ch- anyways, just when you start connecting those dots, it's oh, kind of like the, the rabbit holes. They, they go deep, <laughs> yeah. Well, like I got sucked in recently. And again, it's like uh, when I get sucked in, it's always at the level of legit stuff. Legit. That's what I'm saying. So it's, like yes, the, yes, the, yes. the FBI declassifies information. Like I pay attention to that. Or yeah. if, if people share stuff and, and it's like actually the FBI link, like I'm on, I'm on the Bureau of Justice Statistics website like every other day. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, neat. Like, let me read up on this. The, the finders um, was an event that happened in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, these like two guys in suits got arrested um, with like half a dozen kids that looked like malnourished and dirty and whatever. And the two guys were in suits. And it like the claim is that it was like they basically lived in like a commune and the kids were just sort of like free range kids and the commune was outside of Virginia and whatever. But the, the reason why I got drawn into the news story about the FBI doc release, this was a couple of months ago, is because I remember this news story growing up in Florida. Really? Um, yeah. Like the kidnapping scares surrounding vans was like real, like, yeah. like our, our elementary and like, like preschool. I remember like there being announcements. I remember like my mom freaking out a little bit. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I remember when this happened and everybody was like on edge about creepy guys in vans. Yeah. And so I read up on it and like, sure enough, the report that they released, the FBI now, right, who just screwed up the, the, the redactions on the Epstein files. Yep. Uh, there's, a, there's like pages in this unclassified report of this event that happened in Florida with the McMartin preschool scandal. I don't know what that is. Like the McMartin preschool scandal, like they, they made movies about this. It's all part of the, the satanic panic. Okay, gotcha. uh, where yeah, yeah. a bunch of kids went through like uh, psych therapy, um, hypnotherapy, and then like reported like, oh, and like he turned into a giant bat and like yeah. ate like three of the kids. Yeah. No like tangible evidence to link any of this stuff. But like portions of that case are just in this FBI doc what? about a wholly unrelated event. And so everybody in the conspiracy theory world is like, what the hell is going on? And I was like, this is like a real FBI document. This is legit. Like, I'm yes. like, conspiracy theories are generated because these organizations are so dumb. Yeah. It, <laughs> and like how they, how they release real information, like, yeah. like these Epstein documents. It's like, like if you, if you copy and paste the PDF into the, into the text doc, you like can see all the redactions. Really? You didn't, you're like late on the, uh, on the up, uptick. Dude, I, um, no, I did not know that. Yeah, they they declassified a bunch of uh, legal depositions that took place in 2016 yeah, of yeah, the accusers. For, yeah, yeah, for the girl from Australia who lives in Whenever Australia. you do that, there's naturally going to be some redacted material because certain people might have different cases. Sure. But like the FBI or whoever was responsible for putting it up online, they highlighted the text in the PDF and used black as the highlight color. So if you copy and paste all of the text out of the document and put it back into a regular text doc, you see all of the redactions. Holy shit. 
fucking idiots. Yeah. Oh my god, dude. Yeah. So I gotta like, text my buddy. Like, I know all these like skeptic and like rational-minded people who are like, oh, conspiracy theories are so harmful and blah blah blah. And I'm like, yeah, you know whose fault that is? Yeah, the feds. Like, <laughs> like people who do censorship and people who who release information and people who don't answer the good faith questions. Yeah. So it's like, like if 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 portions of the American citizenry are unsatisfied with the explanation for 9-11 or the Las Vegas shooting or COVID or whatever, it's like, you got to meet them. You got yeah. you, you to be like, okay, here's the answer yeah. to that question. Yeah, yeah. But it's not, that's, it's just not the way we get information in, in the current world. And so that's what I mean by there might be like a new realignment in the Steve Davies sense where conspiratorial thinking or anti-establishment thinking seems like it's on the uptick and that to me is not a good sign by any stretch no but it it's good like i worry that it'll be a dividing point amongst people ordinary citizens having good faith conversations with one another where half of the people are going to be dismissive about oh you just heard that on the news and the other half of people are going to be dismissive of you just heard that on a conspiracy theory forum and that i mean that's just not good for science it's not good for like good citizenship it's it's not good for our democracy it's not good for anything yeah no you're not going to get anywhere with that stuff but i agree with you i think there's definitely a like that's why i'm I'm just saying like when there's where there's smoke there's fire obviously there's crazy conspiracy theories where people are talking about random shit that has nothing to do with it but it had to stem from some sort of curiosity more than i know the cia i think it's the cia are the ones that deemed conspiracy theories to make it a very kind of negative term um, I don't know if you ever seen the video. I forget who did it, but this guy breaks down the words conspiracy theories and all this stuff. And yeah, after the JFK assassination. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, there's got to be like, you know, have you you've heard of uh, was it Bohemian Grove or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So like, why is there a place where elitists get together and have do whatever the fuck they do? Well, that doesn't really. I mean, as someone who's hung out with some elites, it's like there's a space where every group of people get together. Well, of course, I get it, <laughs> but but I feel like the stories and the things that I, that, you know, apparently go on there are not something where it's like, Oh, we're making the world a better place. No, we're trying to single out certain people in this. I don't know. I, I, I downloaded the, uh, the book by Abramovich. Yeah. The the artist, the the performance artist. Yes. Like partially because of, of that sort of puzzle. I was like, (laughs) Well, this lady's like a legit artist. Like I was yeah, like, yeah. I want like, like I don't have a vis. Like I'm not, I'm not like evangelical Christian or anything like that. Like, like Ma- Marilyn Manson like grew up in my hometown. Sure. And like, like he would be at like, like Borders books when you would like go to the movie theater and like. Oh wow. Dressed like goths in South Florida was like a thing. It was legit. Um, but like my parents were like, that's satanic, and I'm like, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, it's not. I'm like, like, no, I'd be like, yeah, it is, but like, it's just, it's a goof. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, like that's the way in, in which he's criticizing Catholicism and yeah. Christianity, and like, like that's artistic and it's expressive, and and I, I'm sure that you can make the case for Abramovich on the, on those margins, and so some, but some people look at it and they're like, this is this is prima facie evidence of like evil type stuff. Well, when you partner and, with the stuff that it goes with, typically that's where it can get kind of, eh. right, right, yeah. Her by right. herself is um, like you said is like a performance artist, whatever. But when you're throwing semen and blood on, you know, these fake children, but you're also associated with someone who has been either 
charged or is kind of like exposed or kind of like talked yeah. about as pedophilia. But like, the, but like the conspiracy movement or the Pizzagate movement never goes after like guar. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely think that's that's where like the conspiracy theories fuck up, where they kind of like get so tunnel vision on one thing and not really like the more practical kind of like we could well, probably see results from this if we just took it a different way. I mean, and but that's what I mean is like this is consistent in social science, like sampling on the dependent variable or yeah. or like drawing excessive connections. It's that's just not the way you would set up the science to like prove that something is or isn't happening. Exactly. Um, and I mean, a lot of it, the, the the coincidences, like I think coincidences are reasonable ways for people to think yeah like it's 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 obvious that like human beings are prone to this type of like logical fallacy um all the much more reason that like those sort of things should be confronted with with real debunking yes and not smear tactics or censorship so it's like um it's just it's weird it is weird conspiracies are weird but like there i mean they're they're engaged. I think the weird thing that I think is uh, funny about um, the Wayfair stuff is the interactive component. With what? That the same thing with the with the new um, Maxwell depositions released. Like anyone can go on the website and search and recreate the phenomenon not anymore they took the stuff down on wayfair yes. but it obviously went viral because people were like huh bring it up yeah do searches and you have your own little like <gasps> like yeah. I, i'm contributing now i, I verified this and, yes. and, it, and it makes it this sort of like collaborative endeavor yeah when i heard about like oh this like copy paste stuff you like bring up the website you like put it into the text you're like holy shit like <laughs> yeah um so I think there, there's something about the virality. Like if it is the case that like people are, are, are basically punking the internet yeah. with fake conspiracies, yeah. then there, it seems like there's a, a, a predictable recipe about what types of memes, what types of, <laughs> of conspiracy theories are yeah. really going to resonate and like turn into something bigger, like, like large scale events. Yeah. Um, like, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty enamored with the Free Britney movement as of lately. Oh yeah, like, she's like, like what the yellow shirt or whatever it was, and then yeah. she's like wore it in the next video. But the video wasn't even the next video or something. Yeah, any, any of the like silly content that relates to pop culture, I'm yeah. like, I'm like, I love that song. Like, yeah, you're like, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, like I saw, like somebody had made like a twenty-minute documentary arguing that Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj were part of the Monarch uh, MK Ultra conspiracy. That yes. their videos are like triggers to to like, like invoke assassins, yeah, you know, yeah. born supremacy like, or whatever. Like uh, what's it called, Bucky from yeah. Captain America, whatever. I just like that stuff because it's like it's like a remix of the videos. It's like I wish there was a lot more content like that focused on Michael. Jackson. Yeah, um, yeah. legitimately. Just, <laughs> like yeah. people who were like, oh, Michael Jackson's like this album was used to assassinate this person. Like yeah. I would I would watch the hell out of that video. Um <laughs> but the but but what I mean is just that there's maybe it's internet, maybe it's the way we share information, but like like people get vested in it because they can like 
like point click share oh, recreate so like so easy like if 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 you could teach science like the reason why you do science experiments in middle school is because it's like active learning like yeah. you you actually like drop the litmus test and pour the chemicals and like oh like you learn it in in such a more intuitive and personal way um and i think i think the way the internet is set up forums social media etc naturally lends itself to that and so again it's like it's a it's a breeding ground for for conspiracy thinking in a way that like we need to start thinking critically about like if it is damaging how to how to improve upon it and if yeah. it's if it's, if it's legit like, yeah i mean you gotta fucking address it too i th- I, I don't know what it is who's like i just don't understand how like the people like you can't look at like for instance i'm gonna go back to epstein you can't look at someone like epstein that has all these question marks around how he got his money and this and that who has given the sweet deal in 05 to, to basically 13 months in jail which was a joke and then like him being tied with all these elitists and then him suicide getting getting killed or killing himself and then now we have just lane there's just so many there's too many things that are kind of like like working together for this not to have some sort of legit like legitimate kind of like well like like on this margin the uh dershowitz yes the lawyer does like far too much television appearances literally (laughs) i said this when i saw him on the netflix documentary i'm like you're the only person that has ever been kind of like claimed to have any kind of relationship with epstein that is actually facing the the media everyone else has shut the fuck up and they've put their distance to to him he he brought up the uh the tension between federal jurisdiction and local jurisdiction that's like the center of of like what we were talking about earlier yeah insofar as like a large like I think the the plea bargain that took place in Florida rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah. But if you have a stronger knowledge of how federal law versus local law work, it's not nearly as uh, inviting down the rabbit hole, right? Like, yeah. like you can't, dry. well, you can't press charges multiple times, right? That's double jeopardy. Yep. So the prosecutors have to have a case if they're gonna make an arrest, if they're gonna lay a charge. And so Dershowitz points out, he's like, the federal case was weak at that time because what it takes to prove the federal case is the transportation. Sure. Like you've got to have the flight logs. You've got to have the testimony that relates to this person was on this plane against their will. This person was underage and on this plane. Which is almost impossible. And and, and if you don't have any evidence to, to build that case, the feds can't do that much. Yeah. So the charges were praised at the local level and the only thing they really had to go off of was the like sort of solicitation of prostitution and prostitution from a minor yeah um in hindsight though who knows i think i think the 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 hilarious thing now in the in the um the netflix documentary relative to like anyone who spends a little bit of time on the internet like diving down these rabbit holes and then you watch the netflix you're like this is mild like, which is oh. a weird thing to say. Like, I had this conversation with my fiance, and she was yeah. like, what are you saying? And I'm like, yeah. oh, no, I'm not saying that, like, what he did in the show is okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, saying that what it is that people really think, what, what lots of people believe he did. Is way is, worse. It, like, this is, like, the, like, most PG-rated. Exactly. Of, of like, how heinous 
stuff that 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 other really people happened. are 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 hypothesizing. Yes. So it's like that's a weird point of tension. It's it's just very strange. That's a thought that I had too when I watched because I watched that documentary and then I watched a Hulu documentary before that. That literally it was literally the same documentary, but yeah. um, I, I was I felt the same way. I'm like I I feel like I know way more than what this documentary is even you know, accounting that what happened and I know they can only go off of probably what Uh, obviously is factual and has been documented and stuff. Well, and I, I worry, like, I think documentary also is just like a breeding ground for conspiracy theory. Fuck yeah. Like, it's just not like, especially the true crime stuff that's happening now. It's huge. It's, it's super popular, Yeah, but it's activist and it makes me really uncomfortable because it's culture too, man. Fucking. Yeah, well, it's it's orthogonal to the way our criminal justice system is supposed to work, That's right? True. Like, like so, the HBO series about the murders at Robin Hood Hill, the West Memphis Three, yeah, Johnny Depp and uh, uh, Eddie Vedder were really like uh, big funders to get them like a better legal case. It's again, it's like the sort of quintessential satanic panic story. Three teenagers got like virtually like death penalty sentences for torturing kids, and it's like. HBO made a series of documentaries and each documentary, the, each rendition, they did like volume one, volume two, volume three, pins it on a different father. And like, if you watch the first one, you're like, that guy totally did it. And then you watch the second one and it's like, not him. It's this that other guy. guy. Did. Yeah, of course, <laughs> classic document, like one-sided. Yeah. It's, they tell you what they want to tell you. They make you think and, what they want you to think. And the idea that that docu-series was actually like really, really big in shaping the course of the criminal legislation. It's like, that's not good. Like, no, no, you're right. Like, um, Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah. Like yeah, all- anything Michael Moore does is so polarized yeah. and you, it's easily debunked actually. Yeah. So when you wa- when you watch the, the true crime documentary stuff, I'm like, okay, so it's obvious that these people are like in collaboration with the defense or in collaboration with the prosecutors. Of course. Um, and you can, I mean, like funny enough, like Tiger King <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, was like, <laughs> I, I was shocked that they didn't hammer the animal cruelty point at, at all. Right? Cause like, at all. like no one, no one that I talked to really like left that series repulsed no. by tiger keeping. No, and they were like, entertained by yeah. Joe. Yeah. And they, yeah. they like, you could redo that documentary and people would be like, I'm Crying. never going to a zoo yes. again. Yep. And like, yeah, um, that's what I got from it too. I was very yeah. blown away because the, at the end and throughout, they're like, you know, we really want to hone in on like the mistreatment or whatever. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you have gold of the yeah. mistreatment of this kind of stuff and why people should not have their own little zoos and you don't even talk about it. They didn't yeah. talk about it once. I was very disappointed in that part of it, but it was very entertaining. <laughs> very weird it's weird but we should do this again man i really want yeah. i think we should have a, a, a conspiracy theory and you can debunk my uh lizard people stuff if you want <laughs> so you, you're like you're on the lizard people no, no 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 i'm not i just don't i just don't i don't say hey that's not possible unless if it's like even if it's absolutely ridiculous i'm like who the fuck thought about this like some of the stuff is kind of out landish and crazy but it had to come i like to know where it came from and okay if that guy you know i don't know i just like whenever i see stuff i try to the thing i take away is the thing that i don't know the answer to yes um and i'm like 
for better or worse, whatever this like like conspiracy theories are typically explanations. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I don't buy any of the explanation that's being presented here, but they're presenting, right? Sometimes disparate facts, etc. But usually, um, any individual piece can be sort of like debunked or whatnot. But every now and then, there's just like some feature is Something like no one's out. really addressed this. I don't know what the answer is, but like, it's it's conspicuous, and yeah. I I think. So like an example would be like in 9-11 stuff, like, like building seven is like a big holdup for a lot of people. Bro. And like, I don't understand why the commission report, et cetera. Uh, Doesn't address it. Well, like if you Google it, uh, you know that like, this is a big hangup for people. You would do the world a great service if you attenuated that question. Yeah, if you explained um, it. And I'm not a physicist, I'm not an architect. I don't, I, like I know next to nothing. Um, but like when you walk away from all that material, you're like, I, I would love someone who is one of those things to break this down for me. Cause yes, cause, I don't cause, know the answer. To it. Yeah. Cause when you see a building fall, like you do stadiums and all these other buildings that are getting demolished, that it hasn't even been hit yeah. by a plane. Eh. And you don't, you don't even, and that's what I mean. Like the, the ancient aliens debunking documentary, you learn a, a ton, you learn a ton about archeology. span Like, yeah. and anyone who looks at like, like, I don't know, bunk about the pyramids and same i think it's aliens stuff. <laughs> so, like i understand why that's appealing yeah. because when you look at it and someone says oh wouldn't this make sense you go yes. oh yeah sure yeah but when someone who actually knows what they're talking about comes through and they're like actually it worked like this and here's why you're like oh that's great like, yeah. thank you thank you yeah now i don't have to sound like a fucking yeah uh, crazy yeah. person yeah exactly I, i'm actually one of the main reasons why I want to interview the girl, uh, the girl, the woman that um, interviewed uh, Ted Kaczynski after they caught him, because her team was the one that found him. And um, she's the first one to interview him. When they, I want to know about the MK Ultra shit at Harvard. Has, has, has Harvard, like, They've, like, I know in that Netflix series, he, so his testimony is this, this happened to me, it was at Harvard. Yeah. And I know that, like, they're, like, the feds, et cetera, did forms of like experimentation, everything yeah. from like LSD, all sorts of stuff. But like, has Harvard like acknowledged like, I don't, I don't like think Ted they, since he was a student. He was a student. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't think they acknowledged the testing of it. Um, yeah. But I think there actually is proof of, of a program by those professors specifically during that time that those kind of things were happening. And there's other students that actually came forward and also said the same exact things that Ted Kaczynski said. I mean, the other, the other thing is like how much internet and social media oh, reshapes yeah. our public discourse. So like if, if a, a domestic terrorist, the likes of Ted Kaczynski did stuff today, like what the Unabomber was doing, and it turned out that there were, that his stated explanation tied to a major university, like it would be it would bro, bro it so would. Thing, things that happened 50 years ago get more scandal traction in a 24-hour news cycle with a social media component to it today than they would have Back before then. i mean like like and again this this relates to like the sort of national involvement on criminal justice like i grew up in a house without the internet if i wanted yeah. to know what was happening in the rodney king riots i'd like read the new york times yes i'd like like subscribe to a paper yeah, in California. Yeah, you had to do some work. Yeah. So, so the idea that like 
protests half the country away are in my newsfeed and all the people I know are chiming in about it is a very different that's political and, and media sharing and information sharing dynamic. That's like, we got here yesterday. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't really know how to cope with all of those things. I agree. I think there's, we don't, no one knows where it's going. It, it happens so fast. The, you know, the information that we can get just like that. Like literally, I didn't yeah. even know the guy's name, the, the skeptic that I told you about. I just typed in biggest skeptic on Rogan fucking pops right up. Like, <laughs> and I, I don't remember his name. And then now I know Michael Shermer. So no, I agree with you. I think there's definitely a, it's scary that we can get that kind of information that quick. It's good though dumb people like me that don't know a lot of stuff well i mean that's why i always loved the amazing randy what's that he he would he put up a, a like a bounty on um psychic abilities he was like he was like i'll give anybody ten thousand dollars if you can prove that you have psychic abilities under reasonable controls that's amazing and he himself was like a scientist and he used to go on like the johnny carson show and like all oh, these really? people who are like i can move things with my mind and he'd be like okay here's some like packaging peanuts around it can you do it now and they're like no yeah no, <laughs> like, it doesn't you work don't get like the ten thousand dollars yeah yeah that's cool um, shit what's it amazing randy yeah right he's like know. big name in the skeptic community rational wiki that's sort of stuff amazing randy i'm gonna check him out Cool, cool, bro. All right, man. Yeah, I realized we talked for like a butt long. Yeah, we talked so, for like almost three hours. Yeah, man, you can cut and trim, do whatever you want. Oh, I know. I'm gonna let this thing ride, bro. I'm gonna yeah. just cut the tr- in the beginning, and then I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do a little, little, you know, ending here. But um, what I'll do is I'll just do a little ending, and then I'll just, you know, cut the, cut your feed. Yeah, sure. That's cool. But I really appreciate you coming on, and I would love to have you on again, and we could talk about whatever the fuck you want next time. We don't have to talk about criminal justice or anything. We could talk about like I said, lizard people, Epstein, and we'll know more by then probably because the case will kind of, you know, come about and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have some good content, but anyways, so that's it, man. Thanks uh, for coming. That's another episode for the E-Forks was a podcast, a long one, but a good one. And it's perfect for the climate that we're in. So I really appreciate you uh, for coming on, Daniel. Anytime, man. Anytime. All right, bud. Have a good day, bud. You too. Take care. Bye.